0: Hey, Jerry. I'm so excited our podcast Because I Want to Know and Hillbilly Horror Stories are doing a live event together in the Dallas area.
1: Yep, Saturday October 16th. It's going to be so much fun. Dude, you just completely ignored the fact that Mysterious Circumstances and Hillbilly Horror Stories have a live event the night before in Galveston, Texas.
0: I did not. As a matter of fact, Justin, I was just going to bring up the Galveston show on Friday, October 15th.
1: Jerry, why are you doing a commercial with Justin? Once again, you have given him special treatment over me besides we have a special private dinner show in memphis on that tuesday october 12th
0: tracy i would never give anyone preferential treatment over you of course you wouldn't
1: thank you justin
0: um hello leslie fear over here now everyone's ignoring me enough get your tickets and more information at hillbillyhorrorstories.com we will see you there unless we kill each other first Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today, I'm joined with Gunnar Allen Lindblom, and he was the former enforcer for his family in the Detroit Mafia. His story will blow you away because it totally blew me away, so I'm going to introduce him right now. Hey, welcome to the show, Gunner.
1: Hi, how you doing? I, I would say I'm not just the enforcer, but it was a enforcer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: well, hey, you know what? You were pretty up there because uh, you got the point across very well. Whenever anybody had a problem with your family or vice versa, uh, you were the guy that everybody kind of feared, let's be honest.
1: I was one of them, certainly one of the guys that uh, during my era or my generation that did make a statement. Yeah, Yeah. I was
2: good at it. Yeah.
0: Well, so while we're just talking about this, let's talk about the beginning because my listeners are going to want to know how you got into this. I know you were born into this family, but um, can you give us a quick rundown on that? And then I'm going to ask you some questions you probably never been asked. So go ahead and just tell my listeners what started this whole process for you.
1: Well, I look forward to those questions. I mean the questions I get asked all the time are just kind of become trite and boring. I want I want some interesting, you know, organic, real good questions. Absolutely. So I look forward to those. so it, it started with me, uh, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like a start to it. It was just my mother is Grace Carmela Toco and her father was Peter Paul Toko Senior and his cousin was Giacomo Blackjack Toco, um, the boss of the Detroit Mafia for forty years. Uh they're very they're pretty close. I mean they're Gumbadis, which they call each other I means best friends, but you know, there's there's a lot of you know, this there was probably eight or ten guys, you know, they're all Gumbadis. But the you know, Jack Coco was a good friend of my grandfather. And anyways, my mother's brothers, Peter and Sal, kinda introduced me to I won't say my uncle Sal so much. I don't think he ever wanted to be in that life or involved in it, but my uncle Pete, which is my mother's youngest brother he was only 12 years older than me, He's, so he was kind of more like an older brother. And it started very, very young. First of all, growing up, all I ever knew were mafia-like figures around me. It's all I knew, so it was normal to me. It wasn't even something that you, like, it just became normal. It wasn't even, I, I learned at a young age that I was different, or we were different than everybody. But there was a point where, like, a young girl didn't invite me to her party, and I asked her why, and I'm talking five, six years old. And she's like, my mom said you're in the mafia. And I didn't even know what that was. I don't think I said anything. I was confused. But a couple of years later, another boy stopped playing around with me. And I couldn't come around him or whatever. And he said the same thing. Because my mom says you're in the mafia. And I was like, what? So this is weird. So I asked my mother's brother. And I say, what is this mafia? And he, he just kind of was like, ah, it's just our thing. It's our family. You know, you learn when you get older, da, 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 da. So I kind of started to pay more attention to these older gentlemen that would come by the house and see my grandpa and my uncles. And then when I go to the market in Detroit, you have something called uh, the Eastern Market, which is like Detroit's Little Italy. It's a, like a half-square-mile section of downtown Detroit where there's all these wholesale food and produce businesses, and they're all owned by Italians, old-school Italians. We get first or second-generation Italians from Sicily. Most of them are from Terrasini, Sicily, and it's the mob. They own it all. And so it's kind of just like you have these warehouses, the loading docks, and one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it's just wise guys. They're Italian, you know, wise guys. Some more than others. Some businesses are mostly legit, but some are totally mobbed up. And each one of them has their own little, um, like, uh, I don't know, an area, like, like a lounge area. Because when they're not working, they're waiting for trucks to come pick up loads of, right. you know, food or drop or drop off. Everybody kind of sits around and hangs out. And there might be a pool table or a card table there and a kitchenette. And it's real old. Stuff was built in the 20s and the 30s. But there's always wise guys hanging around, just, uh, shooting dice, playing cards, whatever. And so my uncle, uh, I mean, I started going down there when I was very young with my grandpa. And then a little, and I got a little older when I was like in my 10, 12, 14 years old. My uncle Pete was like, come on, let's go to the market, Alonzo. And he grabbed me up and, and we'd go downtown and... And uh, I noticed that, like, the way people treated him, you know, that everybody, like, shook his hand with two hands. Hey, Pete, how you doing? Good body. And they give him a hug. Or, and he couldn't, like, he's like, yeah, my mom sent me down here to get some meat, you know, and pick up some, some steaks or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah I got you, got you. And they'd make up a bunch of steaks and package it real nice. And then they'd hand it to him, and he'd pull out his money to pay for it. And they'd, no, 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 Pete, tell your mother I said hi. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> your money's no, yeah, yeah, and the, and their money's no good here. And basically everybody did that everywhere we went. Nobody would take our money, but the thing was, my grandpa would do the same thing at his warehouse because he had a uh, toco produce, and it was the same thing. When his Mombatis would drop by, he'd go in the back and bust out a, like a box of like fresh produce and vegetables, and he'd bring it out a whole box and just say, "Here, you know, take this home to your mother or your wife or whatever." And they're like, hey, "Pete, let me pay you." He's like, "No, no, no, money's no good here. Take this and go." And it was just one of those things. The community really looked out for each other. But I noticed there was groups of wise guys where they were like. You could tell, young hustlers. We'd walk in and, and they'd be sitting around a card table playing poker, smoking cigars, or playing dice. It'd be money floating around, and you know a lot of ball busting. You know a lot of this, a lot of that. Sometimes it might be a pistol on the sitting there next to a guy at the table, or just you know, so you knew. I knew even as a very young man that these guys were, you know, bad guys. And and um and my grand my uncle was one of them. Now my grandpa, I didn't see him as that kind of guy. Oh. I did learn later on around that, around 14 years old, 12, 14 years old, that my grandpa was a sports bookie. And to me, that wasn't even criminal, you know. Um, there was a room in the warehouse they told me to stay out of. And, and I, and I of course, when they told me to stay out of it, the first thing I did was when they weren't looking was go in there. Of course. And there was, yeah, <laughs> there was boxes of um, these ledgers. And they were just coded ledgers of all the sports books. And you're talking just tens of thousands of dollars um, coming in, and all they were is coded, you know, every code was represented a bookie, and our mo- money, they were up or down, depending on the spread or the layoff, or whatever it was. And anyways, around, you know, around 10 years old, one time, I approached my uncle, I saw a mini bike I wanted real bad, I went up to my uncle, and I said, you know, buy me this minibike, and he kind of laughed at me, you know, he's only like 22 years old, you know, but had yeah, nice, yeah. And he had a big gold chain Cadillac, Dress real natty, you know, just kind of a slick dude. And I said, Well, Pete, buy I me mean, this mini bike. And he's like, I'm not buying no freaking mini bike. You know, and he's like, I'll tell you, it's a mini bike. He's like, So there were these things. Jerry Lewis back in the day had these, like, donation cans. You could grab the, like, kids could grab the can from the local Seven Eleven and go stand out in front of the store and jingle it and say, Would you like to donate to Jerry's kids? You know, they, people would put the spare change in there, maybe a buck once in a while. And, and then we donate the money. But, so he said, go get that brick can And that's how you get your money. The top pops off. Keep the money. I was like, you know, of course, he's my uncle, the man that I looked up to right. as like a mentor, kind of telling me this behavior is okay, not just telling me that, but encouraging it. So I'm like, all right, so this is what we do. So I went and did it, and, and I, I raised 140 bucks. Bought the mini bike for ninety five dollars. Turned like ten dollars into the the Seven Eleven in the can. I was like, wow, that was easy, you know. And then, I remember the next real conscious memory I have of uh, a scam was um I wanted a bike. My mother was on welfare around this time. We moved out of my grandparents' house, me and my sister and my mom. We lived in a big house in Gross Point, where there's a lot of money. We lived in a neighborhood that was like big money, big big money, Gross Point, Michigan. And um, if you look that up, it's some of the most expensive real estate in, the, in America. Uh, actually, I think it is actually per square inch the most expensive real estate in America, more than like Malibu or something. Wow. Yeah, but our house wasn't real, real spectacular. The house today I lived in would probably be about a million and a half dollars or something. But, I mean, it was it was a nice house. And I lived there till I was... And I think, well, Gunnar, uh, let me right let me ask you up something.
0: Up. So, w- your mother was the one who was actually tied into the Italian part of your family, correct? It wasn't your dad, because that you know people were going to go, where did he get the last name? So, you were living with your grandparents. Your mom and dad split up. Your mom decided, hey, I want to do this on my own. I can do this on my own. Although she had some depression issues, I think, and some issues about leaving your dad and 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 having to leave your dad. Your dad wasn't very nice to her for a long time. And I was just trying to give my audience a, a little rundown on that. But no, so keep going. So you guys, your mom says, hey, let's move out. I want to get our own place. So you were about to tell me that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, my mother is, 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 was 100% Sicilian. And my gra- my parents divorced when I, I was like four. And then we went and lived with my grandparents yeah. in this very rich, wealthy enclave called Gross Point. Where, by the way, the entire mafia epicenter lived. Everybody, the entire mob lived within like a five block radius, and it controlled everything. And everybody knew who everybody was. You know, what I mean, and the civilians they knew who we were, and they were respectful. But um, some people were a little nervous and off put by the fact yeah. that the mafia ran the neighborhood. But you anyway, know, it wasn't it wasn't like they were. You know, like they believe me. The neighborhood was like this, no kids were coming to the neighborhood to sell drugs or steal or nothing like that because the mob took care of it. But yeah, so my uh my mom said, you know, she could tell her parents were kinda of getting frustrated having, you know, her and the two kids live with them and so she decided to strike out on her own and she got us a little house out in Harrison Township, about ten miles from where we were living. And um and those I call those years my wonder years. I lived there for like three and a half years in this little this neighborhood in this little house. And you know, my mother was mentally ill. And had manic depressive, and she got sick. And I mean, it was it was a tough time in in terms of that because she she told my grandparents that she was working as a as a school teacher, but she really wasn't. We were on welfare, and my mother was on medication. She was super medicated and slept all day. She didn't clean the house. She didn't take care of us kids. I ran the streets, you know, like something. But I all I did was go fishing every day and and like play with my BB gun in the woods, you know, next to my friend's house down the block. And like, it's all we did is go fishing and play in the lake. And because it was right on Lake St. Clair, I lived across the street, but all my friends lived on Lake St. Clair. So, I mean, we just had a blast. I mean, we had like a chunk of wood, like a couple of acres, and we put a, a bike track in there and forts in there and we hunted in there and trapped in there. And we thought we were like up in and we loved it. But uh, my mother just didn't know what the hell I was doing. And anyway, I wanted to get into freestyling with a bike. You know, the trick, you do the tricks right. on the bike because the kid in the neighborhood was doing these tricks on the bike, and I was like, man, he was just kind of nerdy kid, but he, I watched him do these tricks, and I thought they were so cool. I'm like, dang, dude, I want to I learn how to do that, you know? and I, you got to get the right bike. So he told me to go to the bike store. The kid actually worked at the bike store, and he showed me the bike. He says, this is the bike you're going to need, and it was like 300 bucks, That's a lot of freaking money. You're talking 1985 or whatever it was, or, you know, 86. Yeah. And I said, Mom, can you buy me this bike? He says, I can't afford that bike, you know? He's like, I'd give you $100 for your birthday, which is out of the welfare check, um, but that—that's all I can afford. So now I approach my uncle Pete and I say, "Uncle Pete, because we used to, we still went to my grandparents every weekend, by the way. So Friday night we leave our house and drive to my grandparents' house in Rose Point." And we'd spend the night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then come home Sunday night.
0: And what I don't understand, though, Gunner, I don't understand how they, how did they, I know your mother never asked them for money, but how did they not know she wasn't paying attention to you guys? You couldn't have been cleaned up. You couldn't have had clean clothes. How did they not know? I mean,
1: I don't know how they didn't know, but they didn't know. Well, that's one of the reasons we went there on Sunday, so that my mom could do the laundry, and we could get some food, and mm. I don't know. I just they didn't they didn't know they never visited our house. They never came oh, to the house. We okay. went to them yeah. every Sunday. We went to them, or every weekend we went to them. My mom would do laundry and and would you know. Okay. But they knew my mother was not well either. I mean, she she was still mentally ill when she get to their house. She was like kind of in a daze, kind of tranced out. She sleep all day, kind of talk slow. Just she, you could tell, and they felt bad. It was their daughter, so they probably just. Figured we were just little rugrats like we were. Yeah. And uh, my sister was a really pretty girl, and I wasn't necessarily a real handsome kid or nothing, but I was a, an athlete. I was a really good athlete, but super athletic, yeah. super high-strung, a little a little wiry, muscle-bound kid. Yeah, anyway, so one day, uh, one weekend, I went there, and I see my Uncle Pete, who was living with them still, because he was young. You know, he's still in his 20s. And – um i remember he got busted for selling coke around this time Oh wow. and they were really yeah they were really on him because my grandfather and grandparents were really against drugs even though the mafia generally isn't necessarily against drugs like the myth says um i was just on a documentary Seth sesferente's documentary that talks about debunking the myth of the um, mob and drugs and they're out they're always going to sell drugs because that's where the big money is but my my grandfather was old school and so was my grandparents. So when he got busted selling coke, they just made a big deal out of it and really harped on him for freaking years. It got to the point where he left. He left, he left, moved out. He ended up coming back, but he's like, leave me alone, freaking. The drug I got busted with some coke, so what? But anyways, I get down there and um, and I said, Uncle Pete, man, buy me this bike. I mean, I know he got money, man. We go to the market. You know, he's around. He's around all these wise guys. He might sit down and play dice games for twenty minutes and win five hundred bucks, eight hundred bucks. You got a knot of freaking size of my fist. He pulls it out, throws a couple freaking hundreds on the table. He wins a few hundred bucks, and we leave, you know. And I'm like, you know, you got to pick the money. I just need 200 bucks to get this bike. He's like, I'm not getting – he's like, listen, go get your cousin Johnny. Actually, got my cousin Frankie, excuse me. You know, Frankie lives a few blocks away. Like I said, all the freaking mob kids all live in the neighborhood. So I go – now I'm there for the weekend. So I go get Frankie. You don't tell me why to get him. He just says, go get Frankie. So I go get Frankie, and I said, my people want to talk to you. So we, Frankie was a bad kid, a really bad kid. He mm. was um, a troublemaker. And so he gets to me he says, listen, Alonzo wants you to steal him a bike. Go up to Gross Point South during school hours. Because, you know, this kid was uh, in, like, a middle school, and in the middle school got out, I think, an hour before the high school. Right. He says, so when you get out of school, go up to the high school and steal him the bike you want. And he's telling him the bike you want. And I'm like, all right. So he's like, he'll give you 50 bucks. It was a lot of money to a freaking kid who's, you know, 12, 14-year-old. It's like 13 or 14, I think, right. you know, back then in the 80s, late 80s. So he'll be back next weekend. You got his bike, i will have your money. So that's what my uncle Pete tells him. That's it. I come back the following week. I go over to Frankie's, you know, hoping he's got the bike. And he does. He's got the bike. It's sitting in his garage. It wasn't exactly the bike I wanted. It was a power sport, but close enough. So I gave him the money, and that got to $50. You see what I'm saying? So I'm yeah. like, this is how we operate. You find a, a shortcut. You kind of find an avenue to cut the corner, make money, whatever. Right. And that was basically my, my progression started there. And then shortly after that, there was this guy who owed my uncle like 20000 bucks for Coke and gambling and loan sharking. And, and the guy ran a high-end restaurant called Bobby Moore's Flying Fish, which I learned later on that was owned by a huge Coke dealer. Oh, wow. But I didn't know this at the time. <laughs> And he's a yeah, big Coke dealer, right, a famous kingpin. And anyways, he came up with this idea to pay him back some of the money. What, what they do is create a job position for me called a sinecure job. And I would just go in and pick up a check every week and then give the check to my uncle. And basically, now the restaurant would be helping pay off, you know, this debt for my uncle. So once a week, I'd walk into this place and I'd get a check for 350 The lady doing the payroll, she didn't know I worked there or didn't work there. And they called me a baker. I walk in and just say my name and give me a check and I walk out the back door and I go give my uncle the money and he gave me 50 bucks. And so it was interesting because what really this is a funny story. One day I was walking out of there and they had all these perch. This place is famous for their perch and they, they sold literally a ton of it a week, like a thousand pounds or more of a, a week. Wow. It's a high end place, like a five star place. It's about a mile from Gross Point. So a lot of the high rollers come down to this place. Right. And it's owned by High Roller, and everybody goes there. It's like you know, it'd be the modern day equivalent of like probably hundred dollars a plate, you know, maybe one hundred twenty-five a plate. Wow. So it's a real high end place. Yeah. And um, they get purchased in these big boxes and they dump them out on and a scale. And then they, what they do is they grab like a pound worth or half pound, put them in bags, weigh it, and then they give it to the chef. And then so when somebody orders them, their bag is already pre-made with the you know half a pound or whatever it is, what they call a platter or a half platter. And so I'm looking at them, and I'm like, gee, these perch, these slaves look just like silver bass slaves or what we call white perch, where I come from. Right. A white perch are a little fish in Lake St. Clair that are prevalent, and there's millions of them. And they're really fun to catch silver bass because you could catch them by the thousands at times, and you, the way you do it, we discovered as kids, and it was really fun, is it on a calm day, it had to be a calm day, you'd sit there on a the little boat, a little fourteen foot boat, you and a couple of your buddies, a little motor in the back of the boat, and you would sit there with binoculars and you'd be scanning, 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 and all of a sudden you see seagulls start diving at the water and they go crashing. Now what you would do at that point is start the motor and just rip over there as fast as you can. And what's happening is these giant schools of these silver bass, they swim along the bottom looking up. Yeah. So now the seagulls, being smart and industrious, they just fly around waiting until a school chases the fish up. Now they're jumping, now the seagulls start crashing. Well, and so when you
0: your cue.
1: Fren- <laughs> it's a frenzy. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a freaking feeding frenzy. So you go over there, and there's fish, silver bass jumping all over, shad and minnows jumping all over the place, and seagulls crashing all around you. It's chaos. But it only lasts about five minutes, if you're lucky. And then they kind of, the bait fish school kind of disperses and then the silver bass move on and start, like they'll move on in a school of like 10,000 fish. And they'll move on and they'll maybe go a quarter mile until they hit another school of bait fish. And then the same thing happens again. And so you can follow them around. If you get a calm day, you get up there at crack of dawn, you could follow these school of fish around and catch 500 of them or whatever. Because you catch them on every cast. You catch a thing that, like a Mr. Trister jig. It looks like a minnow. You skip it across the Bang, bang, bang. They all hit it, and boom, you get one. And then right. you throw it in the boat. And we'd fill these boats up. Fill them up. And then we would take them to a, a place called Samson's Fish Market and pay them 35 cents a pound to fillet them. And then my friend's brother would drive them down to this freaking guy, Harry, who was managing this place. And I said, bro, I'll start it off. When I said, I, I can tell you silver bass or white perch for it. Cause he said, I said, how much you pay for these for a pound? He's paying, uh, I think it was $2 a pound. And I'm like, I sell them to you for $1.50 is what I said. He's like, well, he's not the same thing. People will know. I'm like, trust me. They won't know. They just want if you batter and fry them. Nobody will freaking know the difference. He's like, I don't know. I'm like telling you. I am like, all right, here's, I brought him some in here. Fry them up, put them on a plate and eat them. Let everybody eat. Let them know. Let them ask them if they taste anything. Nobody will know that. Nobody did. So he's like, okay, Brett, you can skim a lot of money. If I bring you 500 pounds a week of yeah. these things, you can save an extra 500 dollars a week into your pocket skimming so you're
0: with like, a lot of money. You're kind of in your element, too, because you love to fish. So you kind of knew the ways about yeah. fishing anyway, and you were already scamming things, or I hate to say scamming, but I guess that's what you were doing and what the restaurant was doing. Now, how old were you at this point? I was about fourteen, fifteen when I was doing Oh my that. gosh. Okay. So. Wow. Okay. Okay. Let me so let's let's fast forward a little bit because when you started getting into the bigger jobs and the bigger situations, I think it started out kind of the car dealing and the gambling and sometimes uh going not knowingly against what your family was doing and not knowing that they were involved too and you were stepping on some toes. That wasn't fun for you either, right?
1: I mean, from that point on, I was kind of introduced into the world of the mafia. It was about around that time, my Uncle Pete started saying, you know, the mafia is this. It's called Cosa Nostra. It's how it operates. Uncle Jack, that's the boss, which I had a feeling he was somebody powerful already. I just didn't know how powerful. Okay. I had no idea he was the, the most powerful. But then there was other figures that came around, Uncle Nicky and Paul Corrado and, and Tony Giacalone and these guys. And he would point them out and say, this is who this guy is. And this guy's somebody, somebody. And this guy's somebody. So I'm paying a little more attention. So I get expelled from school at age 15 which is just a long, you know, quick story is I was just a bad kid, getting in a lot of trouble, fights, and got involved in the stolen property ring, yada, yada, yada. Right. And I got expelled inde- I got expelled indefinitely from school at age 15. Like, there was no coming back. My grandfather had to sit down with the superintendent of the school board. Didn't matter. They were not intimidated. He tried to intimidate them. They didn't care. You know, he, they knew they were civilians. and are not going to freaking whack them or whatever. So right. they just. That we don't want him. We know he's a he's a bad kid. We don't want him in our school. He's not welcome. So I was out of school for a year. Then I did go to adult ed on and off for the next like.
0: Gunnar, let me ask time. you something real quick. Before you got expelled permanently, why was that? Was it because you were just? angry i don't i don't know if you were necessarily were an angry person i just think you wanted your way and you were used to getting your way and people worshiped you in the hallways i think it's
1: more than that man it it wasn't me getting my way and i was a kid who had very little adult supervision and the only role model i had only role model i had was my dad who was a you know a woman abusing alcoholic and then my uncle who was a you know a convict criminal a wise guy you know but i really think that i like attention or i wanted attention and not that I liked it. Let's face it. We all want attention. Absolutely. We all like attention. Yeah. Well, I wanted attention, and I bounced around from schools when I was living with my mother. and That's how I ended up living with my dad. Because when I was living with my mom for those three wonder year years, and she ended up in a mental institution, and like nobody even knew that. So me and my sister are now living on our own. My sister is 16. Oh. I am 14 years old. And then I got in a fight. I beat up some bully. By the way, I hated bullies. I've always hated bullies. There was some kid picking on uh, a big kid named Bruce De Moose, a big, harmless, nice kid. And the kid was picking on him, so I picked a fight with him. I didn't think he actually jumped on my back when I went to walk away, so I flipped him over and pounded his face in, but the principal was there. I had been suspended already 10 times already. Oh so gosh. keep in mind, I've been in I've been school 10 weeks only, in eighth grade, 10 weeks. I've been suspended exactly 10 times. So to give you an idea how bad I was, but most of the suspensions turned into in-house suspensions after like the first two or three.
0: But you would think the school would be like, um, there's got to be something going on with this kid. I mean, I, we know he's, he's a troublemaker maybe, or maybe he doesn't like bullies or whatever they thought of you. Wouldn't they go to your home or call your mother or your dad or someone saying, they what's did. up? They oh, did. oh, okay. They, did.
1: okay. they did. That's what happened. That's how it ended up. That's how it all ended up. They called my mother who was had, you know, sole custody of me. And my mother said, like, Oh yeah, I'll discipline him, I'll do something. And they like I can only remember like one other fight or two other fights. No, was two. It was one Ron Tom wants he punched me in the back of the head the first day of school and I freaking turned around and punched him back and we started fighting. Got suspended for that. But it was only like a day. And then I got and the next one was this kid who his name was Dave, big muscle bound kid, but he had getting run over by a truck when he was a child So he had this horrible like limp. Like really bad limp. He's a nice looking kid, real handsome and, and but And he was muscle bound as hell, but he was, and he wasn't like a punk you would pick on. But there's like two or three bully, uh, like older kids walked in the bathroom and started like bullying. And I was like, yeah, I was in eighth grade. These kids didn't even know me because they came from another schools. You know, we all came from the schools, like elementary schools, to go to one middle school. And anyways, I, I started fighting with them, you know? and all. I said, "There's no freaking way you're gonna figure me picking on this kid. Man, he's a fucking harmless guy. He's not a, you know, he's got a, he's crippled, man." So I went berserk and beat one of them up and whatever. But really, most of the suspensions they gave me were in-house suspensions, where they're like, "Okay, well, you're suspended. So what you're gonna do is go sit in this room closet." Like little rooms, like a cell, like a prison cell. Here's a desk. Here's your homework. You could leave to go to the bathroom and go to freaking lunch. That's it. You're in here all day, which was a nightmare and a precursor to prison yeah. for me. Basically, oh, yeah. it was like, yeah, it was. It was like prison. I hated it. I mean, a hyper kid like me who just needed like stimulation and interact. The one thing you don't know about me yet is that so they had given me IQ tests. Uh, on several occasions throughout the years because I was such a troublemaker. And they're like, what's his problem? Is he mentally challenged? Does he have a learning disability? What's right. his problem? Boom, they give me an IQ test, and I've scored through the roof. They're like, "So he ain't dumb. He's yes. got you know, 130 IQ. This guy, you know what I'm saying, he's freaking a smart guy. But he can do the work, he can't succeed. He needs a more stimulating curriculum, and we don't give it to him. And at one point, they tried to put me in this class of, like, really nerdy weirdo kids who at the time I thought they were like like mentally retarded kids or something. There was like eight of us, and they took me out of the normal class. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade, and they took me out of the normal kids class, which I liked being in because I was with my little crew in there. Right. And they stuck me in this class with a bunch of freaks. All I mean, they're freaks, like the w- weirdest kids you can find in school. They were all in this class. Now in my mind, I didn't know they were all freaking like brilliant, smart freaking prodigies. I <laughs> thought they were like retards, You know what I'm saying? Oh. Well, they're all probably millionaires. You know, they're all like CEOs and stuff, probably now, millionaires. But at the, but at the time, they just looked like freaks to me. And I didn't want to be in there. So I kind of rebelled against that, too. And I ended up getting in a fight with not one of them, actually, with another kid. The first kid I ever knocked out, it was fourth grade, that's all I know. Oh, my I, God. I, I knocked the kid out.
0: Fourth grade? Yeah. Wow.
1: I, not, wow. I knocked out the kid. I knocked out my first kid in fourth grade. And just, and then, but then his friend walked out and said, Who did this? And I looked at him like, Yeah, I did. And the reason why I knocked the kid out, by the way, is because he jumped on my friend. I just happened to be seen from across the schoolyard, this kid, like, jump on the back of my friend. And I snapped, thinking they were fighting. This guy was like, get my friend. So I ran. I didn't even know they were playing, and they were friends playing. I just snapped. So I ran over there, pulled the kid off my friend's back, and freaking knocked him out.
0: But here's a question I was going to ask you, though, Gunner. You know how you hate bullies? I think you probably know, maybe know where I'm going with this. You witnessed some things when you were a pretty young child when your dad would beat your mother. And I'm wondering if that was something was a a precursor to your feeling on do not attack innocent kids, not in my presence anyway, because you're not going to like it and it's going to be a bad outcome. And I have a feeling that's that's kind of what started that with you. I I, I don't know. Maybe you
1: No, no, you're totally right. It's totally right. I'm not laughing at it. It's funny, but it just made me think
0: of it. So. Let's be honest. Fourth grade kids are not knocking out children. So you had PTSD from this stuff, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. No, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. So look, just to finish off with that fourth yeah. grade kid, what happened was after I knocked him out, his friend walked up and said, who did this? And I said, I did. And that kid smacked me in the mouth. And I freaking went crazy and chased that kid around the, school, the schoolyard for the next 20 minutes trying to get him. I ended up punching one of the school lunch ladies in the stomach. Like, he was hiding behind the lunch lady trying to get away from me. Oh, wow. And I freaking was swinging at him, punched her in the stomach. And, it just, and they basically had a big sit-down with my mother. And, that, and they said, listen, it's not working out with him in the special class. We're going to put him back in the regular class. Whatever. But, so, right. this is funny. I'm going to take you back to kindergarten kindergarten and my parents divorced when I was four right. I did go to kindergarten for a few weeks but then they got divorced and I went to live with my grandparents and they put me in this new school called Trombley, which is right in the mob central neighborhood I told you about where it's all mobbed up right. and it's all mob kids there and the first day of school there was this big kid who was like a total bully and anyone who ever seen The Godfather yeah. this guy was like a Luca Brazi like this big dumb kid and he was bullying all these kids. So they gave us these building blocks, these wood blocks. And they were, like, full size so you could build, like, a fort out of them and you could build things with sure. them. And that's what people were doing. They yeah. had to build little forts. But they were wood blocks, legit, like two-by-fours and four-by-fours and stuff. When this kid walked up, he said, give me that. Give me that. And he's taking everybody's stuff and, like, kicking over everybody's creation. And I'm sitting there watching this guy, and I'm like, man, hell no. So I picked up the two-by-four and walked over there and smashed him in the head. And just started freaking wailing on him with the two by four. And so that's a kindergarten. I got suspended for that, you know, for yeah. you know, beating up this. And by the way, that kid, he was like two years older than everybody because he got, he was a big dumb kid. He got held back a couple of grades. So the kid's like seven years old in kindergarten picking on these kids. So that's... But right right before that is when I had seen my mother being beaten up by my dad. So you might be right.
0: Well, I I just think that, you know, there's a correlation there. There has to be because, you know, when when a child witnesses something like that, that's traumatic. I mean, regardless of if you're over it now and all the things. Uh, I know you didn't really have a real close relationship with your father, I think you would have liked to have had a better relationship with him, but uh, it just didn't turn out that way. And part of the time you were in prison. But yeah, to me, I'm like, I was listening to you on other podcasts going, well, he was going through PTSD. He And I'm not excusing it. I think you even knew. Some of it was a little more than it needed to be, but I understand why you wanted to beat up on kids that were beating up on other kids or picking on other kids. You took it to a little extreme, but so did your dad.
1: Yeah, and also women, like anyone who abuses a woman physically, I've always had a... I mean, I saw a guy one time, I was driving down the street with my girlfriend. Now, my girlfriend knew me really well. I'd been with her probably 10 years at the time. She'd she'd seen me only once or twice, getting a couple fights. She saw me... Not really fights, it's just me knock out a couple guys with one punch for knockouts. So she knew I was, what I was capable of. She knew my reputation. She knew all this, everybody talked about it, whatever. But she's she seen me just smash a guy over the head with a TV just for hitting on her one time. I warned the guys. My girlfriend Stop he just kept doing it. So I smashed him over the head with a TV. She didn't say a word. She saw it coming. She jumped out of the way, but never said anything after. She was just like, yeah, I, I knew that was coming. This
0: is before you were big and steroids and working out a lot. Is that true? Or, or is this?
1: No, I was big. No, I oh, was you were big, big then. The okay. Yeah. 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 I, I've been big since, since I was like 16, 17. Oh, okay, because I remember
0: you were saying you were kind of a wiry kid when you were younger, so I didn't know when that started. So you get kicked out of school permanently at 15. So now, oh, boy, (laughs) you got to maybe start working more for the family. I'm not sure what happened after that. I'll let you tell everyone.
1: Well, after that, I went straight to the street, and and that you know, I got kicked out for being part of the stolen property ring and all this stuff. Around this time, I racked up two charges for – I got a felonious assault, a couple of assault and batteries. I got a um, malicious destruction of property charge, a false police report charges. We're talking felonies here. So I mean, I'm already racking them up. I'm 16 years old. I got like five felonies already. So now, and I just took to the streets full time. My dad worked all day, so I could hustle all day long, sell weed out of the house, you know, and just run around the streets selling a little bit of coke and, and weed and ecstasy, and not acid, but acid and um like Michael Dots and anything I could get my hand on that would make me some money. And I lived the life of a freaking young, lazy, dope dealer. And And then around 16, I had a couple friends of mine. They're starting to work out and got buff. They played football and the girls liked them and I wanted to be like them. So we started working out together and I got into working out and I had pretty good genetics and I blew up pretty fast. And then I discovered steroids, which... The irony is, like, I discovered the money in steroids, not the fact. I didn't need steroids; I didn't take them. Right. Like everybody thought I was on steroids, they all thought I was on steroids because I sold them. So they just assumed that I was on. Steroids. And they'd always say, hey, "I want what you're on, bro. You look good." And I'm like, Dude, "I'm not on nothing." Come on! I'm like, and I tell you, the joke's on you, man. It's nothing. I just eat real good and work out real hard, and that's it. I know I probably had in my mind. I'm thinking I probably had better genetics than you, uh, to a degree. But if you work out hard and eat good, you're going to get good results too. I would rather make a hundred dollars off a bottle of steroids than waste a hundred dollars taking a bottle of steroids. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I was oh, that greedy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I I'd just rather have the money. So I just started selling steroids and I started, you know, I got plugged in with the big steroid plug, which was this Italian wise guy named Joe. And I'm getting busted in a huge steroid bust, But, uh, I got busted too when I was 17 years old. I got busted with two hand-to-hand deliveries of steroids, like 5,000 bucks worth of steroids oh, twice. Wow. But around this time I'm in the, I ended up going to the youth home for once for two weeks and once for 10 weekends. And it's funny cause I'm like 17 years old. I had to report myself to the youth home every weekend, but I lied and said I had a job on Friday nights and Saturday morning. So I only had to show up at Saturday afternoon And I would show up drunk and high. I'd pull up in my freaking, yeah, pimped out Mustang. I'd pull up in my pimped out Mustang with like, you know, 4,000 watt kicker system in it. I'd pull up to the youth, boom, 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 park right out front. (laughs) They're like, what do you want? I'm like, I'm here to report in for the weekend. They'd let me in. They're like, you smell like alcohol. You smell like weed. I'm like, no, I don't. They didn't have the means to say, they didn't have a mean, they didn't test or nothing like that. So they'd bring me in, and by law, they had to ask me if I was hungry. I said I was. They'd wheel me out a cart of food from the kitchen, which was good food, and I'd eat a bunch of food until I was stuck. And then I'd lay down in the freaking day room and play pool or ping pong ball or watch movies for a day, and then I'd go. Then and I'd, and I'd go home the next day. So, I mean, that's, that's about 17. And the thing was, I was bigger, more muscle-bound and more, like, man-developed than half the guy's uh, corrections officers who worked in there, and because I'd been working out for about a year, and I was, you know, a year and a half, and I, you know, I was just a big muscle-bound kid. Meanwhile, the rest of the kids are in there. They're all like 14, 13, 14-year-old, 14 15-year-old bad kids, but they're like 90 pounds. And I'm like about 160, to 170 muscle-bound, which is you know kind of right. like a muscle-bound man. Yeah. And anyway, so I, I get busted with the steroids. I fight the case for a year and a half. Uh, my grandpa actually bribed the judge. I don't know if you call it a bad. Yeah, that's a bribe. He's he get he pay, <laughs> He gave the judge 10,000 bucks to see that I don't go to prison, and so wow. they it was a big deal. They really are my grandparents were real upset about it. <clears throat> but by the way, I didn't mention this At around 16 years old, my uncle Pete, my mother's brother, busted me with some weed. And this is kind of funny because it was a weird thing, he's a wise guy and a biker, so he did both, which is strange, but it happened. And um, so one day he might be dressed in a shirt and tie and a suit, you know, whatever. Next day, he might be wearing like a leather biker jacket, and this was his style, he liked to change it up. So he bought me this leather jacket one time. It was a brown jacket. And I'm like, I don't really like brown, man. I want, a, I want a black one like you got. It was a cool jacket. I liked it. I said, I want one like you got. And he's like, all right. And so he bought me one and got me basically the same size as his because he figured I'd grow into it. You know, I was young. I was like 16 years old. Right. So anyways, I come over for the freaking dinner like I always did every weekend. And I had left a bag of weed and a bunch of money in the pocket. And when he went to like leave to go to the market or something like that, he grabs the wrong jacket, puts it on. I don't know, at some point he discovers there's a bag of weed and a bunch of money in the pocket. So when he comes back, he's like, you know, Alonzo in the basement. And I'm like, oh, no, here we go. Like, I yeah. can tell something the wrong. The dreaded basement <laughs> talk. <told laughs> the basement is trouble. Yeah, it yeah, usually is, he, he, You know, I know. Yeah. It's not like he could whoop my ass at this point. I don't even think he could have whooped my ass if he wanted to. But, yeah, he probably could have whipped my ass at this point. But he wasn't the type to, like, beat, beat up on me. He, just, right. he never really did that. But I can tell he's mad. And he pulls us out of the pocket. He goes, what the app is this? And I said, it's weed. Now, I kind of get the chills. I'm all scared. I'm god! I'm on my alcohol and drugs. Is he going to tell Grandpa I'm in trouble? Blah, blah, blah? And he goes, it's some weed, man. Like, so what? It's some weed. He's like, what are you doing with this? I said, I, I sell it to make a buck, man. I got to make a living just like you, you know. And he smells it. He goes, this is some BS weed. And he throws it at me. He says, listen, if you're going to sell weed, sell good weed. Just come here. And he takes me upstairs to the, out in the garage, and there's some boxes and under some stuff. And there was, like, a park. And he opens it up, and under in one of the boxes, the banana boxes, was about 10 pounds of wheat. And he said, take one of these. He's like, you know, how much are you paying for your pounds? I'm like, about a thousand bucks, I think it was. He's like, all right, take one of these, thousand bucks. You know, just, just, when you're ready, take another one. So he became my weed dealer, too. So now, I mean, and so, yeah, so now I got, I'm selling weed for my uncle. And the reason I got in with the steroid crew was because of him, because I threw his name out. I knew these guys were big steroid dealers. I had, a, like, a go-between using a guy named Jerry Gaudet. But that guy went away to play college baseball, so I lost my plug. And I knew who the plug, the main guy was. So I approached him in the gym, this guy named Joe, and I said, Hey, man, you know, i up with his nephew. You know, I Next thing you know, I'm at his house, and I'm dealing with these big high rollers on the steroid tip. These guys got busted with, like, $20 million in steroids or something oh crazy. God. Yeah, it was the biggest steroid bust in American history is what it was at the time. And it was like five countries, fifteen states, like 150 guys. It was crazy, a big network, the whole thing. But I was a little peanut, and I just happened to be. I didn't know any of that at the time. I just was like, oh, some guys out there. I just got some money, got a nice house and a big boat. But the, I had no idea that they were, you know, balling like that. And I never, I didn't know until after the newspaper, and it was all in the newspapers and stuff. But anyway, so around age 17, 18 years old, I go to jail. Well, I, go, I end up going for the steroid thing around 19 years old. and fought it for a year and a half, busted when I was 17. Don't go till I'm 19. Turned 20. I turned 20 in jail. My mom died that same year. Oh,
0: I'm sorry to really that, kind of yeah. Me and I, and I, let yeah. me ask you something, and I'm so sorry that your mother died when you couldn't be with her. I kept asking it to myself every time I heard you tell people the story or any of your story. When you started needing money, why didn't you just ask your family for money instead of doing illegal things? I mean, is it just because it was in already ingrained in you that you'd already that's what you knew? That's all you knew. Would it be disrespectful if you asked for money? They were your family. I mean, I know you weren't full Sicilian Italian because your dad was, I think, Swedish and your mom was. She's Sicilian. So you're almost like a Fitzroy uh, when it comes to royalty. That's how they do it. uh, Like King Henry VIII, he had a son with a mistress. He definitely recognized him. He had a place at court, the whole thing. He had power, but he was still not the full-blood son of the king. So you, it's kind of like that with you, right? But why didn't you just ask him for money?
1: I mean, listen, we all have our pride, you know what I'm saying? Oh, it's yeah, that simple. Yeah. It's the same reason my mother didn't ask for money when she needed it and she, or help when she needed it. She just wouldn't because she had her pride. I, you come from the culture I come from. You just don't walk up to your grandparents and say, I need money. You know, what I'm saying, unless it's right. like for what emergency you got to you got to go to the dentist or something, or you, you got a doctor appointment. What do you need money for? Got to survive. They're going to say, quit your ass a job." But yeah. I, I yeah. and they would have gotten me a job, but I was a lazy bum. Yeah,
0: you wanted you know? the easier, quicker I, route. Yeah,
1: I enjoyed the street life, and I enjoyed that street life. I enjoyed sleeping until eleven o'clock in the morning, getting up, smoking a joint, working out at, for a couple hours, and hanging out. Putting my beep around my belt, go do my rounds through the neighborhood, jump in my nice tripped out car, drive to the neighborhood, go from friend's, this friend's house to that friend's house to this friend's house. That. Oh, I get a beat, somebody needs a bag, I'll meet you at the 7 Eleven. I get another beat, somebody needs a bag, I'll meet you over there. Oh, you need a beat? And I carry around a big knot of money, three, four, five thousand bucks in my pocket. And everybody knows I'm a drug dealer. And that's almost a high end itself. Right. So one of those things where you just, you know, especially like with me, I felt like I was this scrawny kid and nobody liked. And now, by the time I'm in my late teens, kind of this muscle bound tough guy that now everybody respects because I was, you know, a drug dealer and I was a tough guy. And then, like two or three years ago, everybody thought I was some little punk ass little squirrel. And then they see me break a few guys' jaws, you know, beat the crap out of some guys at parties and stuff or right. not, uh, bars or something. Now everybody's like, hey, I feel i want to shake my hand, and be my friend. So that had its own little power trip too. Absolutely. You know, normal kids don't think like that. Normal kids aren't thinking like that. They're thinking about graduating high school, going off to college, you know, and what career they want to start, whatever. I didn't have those, those options because, you know, I'd been kicked out of school. So I just, uh, this is the look. The thing is, you get kicked out of school when you're 15 years old. Everybody normal is in school. So what do you got left? That's you got true. dropouts, degenerates, drug addicts, losers, bums, thieves, cons, scams, and liars. That became my world. Yeah. They all, you know That's all
0: I knew. No, it makes sense, and that's the thing. I mean, no, that's, that's all you knew, and that's all you were shown. Plus, you had no parental guidance. There was none of that. So you pretty much raised yourself from the time that you, you guys left your grandparents' house until the time you got kicked out of school. So so now you're, you're doing the, the steroid scene and the weed scene, correct? Or... No,
1: I was do both. I was doing both. So I got right. busted, and then I went to jail. For, I ended up going to jail for six months, and I get out of jail, and, I, and my dad didn't want me to come live with him. He basically said, I don't want you living here. So, uh, Actually, before that, before that even happened, he kicked me out. So before I went to jail, I ended up getting kicked out. Uh, that's how I left my dad's house. He, he just said one day, he's like, how, how do I get you the F out of my house? Because he couldn't take it. He's a drunk. And he just, he just wanted to be drunk at his house when he left alone. My house, when I was there, girls were calling every freaking five minutes. You know, Friends were popping over. The phone was ringing all the time. I was in and out of the Drove him crazy. He, you know, a normal father wouldn't even have noticed. But he was a drunk. You know what I'm saying? He just wanted. Nice. So I said, just joking, give me 500 bucks. I'll leave right now. And he's like, I'll let you a check and help you pack. I said, all right. So I called my cousin, Joe, who had a house on a Seven mile in Detroit. He lived with his boy, Dino. I said, bro, can I freaking rent the basement of, of your house out and give you guys 150 bucks a month or whatever it is? And they're like, yeah, no problem, man. So I, I, I packed all my stuff and moved in with my cousin, Joe, and Dino. And, and it was great. All these guys, these are two big bodybuilders, man. They're really nice guys, they're super sweethearts. And then I ended up going to jail, getting sentenced finally me for this steroid thing. And I'd only lived with Joe for, like, maybe two months. And I go to jail, and then by the time jail, I don't know. I decided I didn't even want to live with dumb guys. I think, and I was like, I just want to live with my grandparents. Which, which I love my grandparents. I just thought, man, this would be much better if I live with my grandparents. Sure. I can live in my grandparents' basement. where I got good food. I have good structure. I, I like my grandparents. I wanted to be around them, you know. Right. But that didn't that was that that wasn't good either because two old people that are in their freaking sixties or whatever, late sixties, 70s, they don't want a young twenty-year-old kid living in their house either. Same reason. Girls calling all the time. People coming and going. People calling. They didn't want that, and it right. drove my freaking grandparents nuts, especially my grandmother. Uh, my grandpa never really had a problem with it. He was really chill. But my grandmother, especially, hated the girls. She hated putas. The girls were calling. I get girls. I had ten different girls call me a day. and she knew I had a girlfriend. So she just she hated the girls. She she didn't. It drove her nuts. So I finally moved out on my own. But around that time, this is a pivotal point in my life because I was 20 years old. And around this time, my cousin Nina Mizaraka's graduation party was this event and as a big deal. And like all the mob was there. And um, I just got out of jail and my grandpa was sitting down with several mob bosses, including Tony Giacalone, Jimmy Bologna, and all these other guys. Wow. And my grandpa said in Sicilian, he said, you know, once you, you put it out of the work. And my grandma says, no. Now they don't realize I can understand what they're saying because they're speaking in Sicilian. And I'm like, I'm listening. I'm like dancing with my little cousin. And one of the little girls are like, got their arms wrapped around my legs. And we're just to the music. It's a big party. And my grandma says, no, no, no. You just got out of jail. You know, and my grandpa's like, right, maybe give him a job, Tony. And he's like, yeah, you know, okay. And then my grandma says, no. It's nice the hand on the table. And I said, do I get a stay in this? And they all looked at me. They're like 12 people at this big round table. And they're, all looking, they're like, you know what we're talking about? I said, yeah, yeah, Grandpa just asked Tony to give me a job. And Grandma says, no, what's the big deal? I mean, I could use the job. And He's like, oh, we'll talk about it when you get home. Now, my grandma was like, you just got out of jail. I don't want you to go to work for Tony because you're going to end up back in jail. And my grandpa kind of shrugged like, like she's the boss. She makes the calls. So here's what ended up happening. So my grandpa starts telling me, listen, let's go to the market. Let's ride with me to go here. Ride with me to go there. And he starts introducing me to his Gumbadis, these high-level mob guys, the highest level there are. These are the guys that, you know, when you look at a movie like Goodfellas, for example, and, you know, and he, like there was a guy named Paulie, and Paulie was the main guy that they all looked up to and like, idolized. Paulie answered to another guy, and that guy answered to another guy. Uh-huh. Well, I was around the guys that Paulie and the other guy answered to, meaning the highest-level group. My grandpa was with them all the time. He was a layoff bookie, so we'd like, bring money, drop off money, bring numbers, pick up numbers. So I would go to meet these guys and I'd hang out with them.
2: Right.
1: As eyes end up getting bad, it happened a lot more frequently. Even though I stopped living with them after a minute, and I went and lived on my own. Um, I lived with my boy Nick Morelli and my boy Maddie Monday, and a couple. Of, and then I got my own apartment, and my own house. But I, my grandpa I said, "Listen, your eyes are going bad because he's blowing red lights, he's crashing up cars." I said, "Grandpa, you got to go see your bodies. Give me a call. I'm five minutes away, I'll be here. I'll take you." And my grandma agreed that's the smartest thing to do He's going to kill somebody with his bad eyes. And uh, so now I'm driving around town all day meeting these freaking mob bosses. And now these are the same mob bosses that essentially have seen me grow up since I was a child. Remember when I beat the Luca Brazzi kid up in kindergarten with a building block. Remember when I got suspended for this. Remember when I got expelled for that. Remember when I went to jail for this. Remember when I went to the youth home for that. Remember when I got a felony for this, a felony for that. As I, they've been watching me my whole life. They know. I mean, they're, they're, they're my grandpa's best friends. They hear every story. They know everything. I right. see them at the house. They don't say much about it. They're like, hey, Alonzo, how you doing, man? I got in a little trouble. How you?
0: you go by Gunner now, but they called you Alonzo or Al, right?
1: Yeah, Exactly, okay. just, just
0: letting my listeners know, like who they, who's he talking about? This owl guy, yeah, that—that's you.
1: <laughs> yeah. So my real name, my my birth name is Alonzo. I my birth name is Alan, but they called me Alonzo all my life when I was a kid, and oh. so that's what my family called me. And um and my middle name really is Gunner, yeah. so I just kind of switched that. But a lot of my close friends did call me Gunner all my life because they like it. They're like, Ah, Gunner, you know? They call me Gunner. Nobody called me Alonzo except, like, my grandmother and my uncles and some of the old men, you know. But whatever the case, they had known me all these years coming up as a freaking knucklehead. And now, here I am. Now, when they were at our house, they were acting like uncles, just like old men, kind of just like, hey, really polite. Like, they didn't talk business around women. So there's always women in the house. So if they talk business, they go in the basement or in the back room or whatever. And lots of times they speak in Sicilian. And I couldn't understand what the hell they're talking about, even though half the time they're talking about me. Well, now I go with my grandpa, and I go to their places of business, and they're sitting around playing penny poker or smoking cigars and hanging out, and they start asking me, like, about different stories. Like, I heard you did Bust It Up Joe's Nightclub, and I heard you busted up Nicky's Place, and I heard you did this guy in this fight, and I heard you did that and that. What's this thing you got busted for now? And then I'm telling them the story, and I'm real animated when I tell them the story, and then they're listening, and... And then they start telling me their stories, and now I'm kind of bonding with these old dudes. So they're like laughing at me, I'm laughing at them, and they're like, he's one of us, I'm one of them. So eventually they kind of just accepted me, and at some point they're like, hey man, you know, you want to make a buck? And I'm like, do a what? A little of this or a little of that? And um, it started when Tony Jack had me beat a guy up one time who, who was messing with his girlfriend. His girlfriend's ex-husband, I think it was. Oh, wow. He come home and uh, he came home drunk and slapped her around, and and she called Tony. Now, if you don't know who Tony Jack is, Tony Jack Jackaloni is like one of the most notorious mafia mob figures in the history of America. Jimmy Hoffa was going to meet Tony Jack the day Hoffa disappeared. Oh, wow, wow, so that's, uh, his
0: name's the number one funny.
1: suspect in Hoffa. Oh my god.
0: Oh, my yeah. God. Now, are you related to Tony Jack?
1: Yeah, through marriage. His daughter married my cousin, Tony.
0: Okay, okay. Wow. Dang, dude. <laughs> that's just yeah. craziness. So,
1: so that's how our families were kind of close. I'm not sure if that's why he was close with my grandpa or, if the, or that he was close to my grandpa because my grandpa was a big layoff bookie and, and Tony Jack was like the lord over bookies. If anybody tried to book a bet in Detroit, if you didn't have the graces of like the, the blessing of Tony Giacalone, you were gonna have a problem. Somebody like me was going to show up and you were gonna either pay or you're gonna be hurt. That was that. And it didn't matter if you're Chaldean, if you're Jewish, if you're Arabic, if you're Lebanese, it didn't matter. You're going to pay Tony. That's it. Otherwise someone like me will show up. He controlled gambling across the board. And two of his biggest guys were El Hilf and Freddie Salem. One was Lebanese guy and one was a Jewish guy. These guys are booking hundred million dollars a year in bets, you know, and wow. ten million in juice. So Tony says, you know, this freaking punk slapped around my girl, which who I assumed was his girlfriend, and he's like, "Will you handle this?" I said, "Yes." Yeah. So I went over there, and long story short, I put his big gold nugget ring on, and I went in there and, and yanked the guy out of the out of bed by his hair, and I pulverized him. I just, you know, mutilated the wow. dude, and then I threw him out, and you know, and said, the "Next time you put your hands on a woman, you'll need a surgeon to put your face back together." And then sent him on his way. So she told him. And he said, okay, you know, he he liked hearing the story. When I told him, he, like, wanted me to tell it. And, like, I told him, like, he liked hearing the details about when I hurt the guy. And so he had me do it a couple other times over the years. Usually he wouldn't necessarily order me to hurt a guy. He'd just say, this guy, you know, owes money. He ain't paying. Right, he's going to call you. He's going to give you an address. You know, he's going to give you a number to find the guy. Get him, you know what I mean? Get the money. Handle, it. you know, if I beat the guy up, it was only because the guy got tough with me. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. But most of the time usually they didn't, if I, as soon as I told them who I was representing, I was there to represent. A couple of times they were like, you know, F Tony and F you. And I'm like, oh, have to be Tony and me. And then I freaking smash your face in. And then Tony would be like, why did you freaking smash the guy's face in? I'm like, Cause you know what he said to you? And he said, F you and F me. And he's like, okay, well, tell me how you did it. And so I did it. I told him, so one of the next things he had me doing was working security at Poker games, which was a crappy job, but easy money, you know, standing around all night, you know, sitting in a chair all night by the door. And uh, while these guys play poker, until so there's a one winner, it might take six, eight hours. Um, if there's any arguments or, you know, or kind of heat that comes between any of them, I'd stand up and so say, calm down, guys. You know, this is our game. Relax, you know I mean? Nobody's yeah. cheating. Nobody's yada, yada, yada. There's no um, time limit on how long a guy takes to make his bet or his ante or whatever. So relax. It's, you know, you're playing a game. It's stuff like that. And I get, like, 200 bucks a night for it. And then I work casino nights at some of the big casino nights where – Dude, big celebrities and crap I mean NBA players judges wow. you know local like dignitaries oh yeah they'd all come to these freaking mobbed up there I'm talking I'm talking circuit court judges local politicians what? NBA players locals oh. surgeons all of them under one roof partying up drinking I mean there's hookers in there they're just, I mean, they, they all bring their girlfriends, these married judges, and, and they're coming here with their freaking stripper girlfriends, and they come in there and gamble.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I can't say any names because I no. get sued, but yeah. what I'm saying, it's no secret to the people who know, one was a really famous NBA player, you know, like a two-time all-star NBA player, and then just judges and lawyers and all kinds of, like, political dignitaries and stuff. Like, the the mob basically runs them all.
0: Oh, well, I was going to ask you before we started recording – The things you were just telling me about your family, I don't even know if they're still in on this or in on the mafia at all. I didn't know if this was even safe for you to talk
1: about. It's safe. It's safe for me because here's the thing. I'm 20 years removed from that world and that life, and there's a kind of a new administration. The old boss died. Tony Jack died. All these other old men died. And the new administration, which is we, like, my father's or mother's age generation, has taken over. Those guys didn't know me really very well. They didn't know me very well at all. Um, They knew a little bit about me. Some were like my Uncle Pete's bodies and stuff like that. And I'd seen them around. And they'd seen me around in the market and various places and family functions and weddings and funerals and stuff like that. But I didn't know. Them. I didn't work with them. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so that administration is now taken over. But when I'm talking about what, this type of stuff, it's nothing that the FBI doesn't already know. I mean, the FBI oh, okay. knows all this stuff. Okay, so I'm not hell, yeah. making anything public that they
0: don't know. Well, that's true. I just didn't know if, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> it's just, I'm, I'm amazed, you know, that, and no one's contacted you saying, don't say anything else. We're not doing that. Or, you know, no one's done that in your family.
1: No, no. It's, it's, what are they going to say? And I'm, I'm saying, that's the thing. Everything I'm saying is public knowledge. Yeah. FBI, I already know it. Scott Bernstein, my friend, who's a, a true crime writer, one of the best in the world. He wrote the book literally called Motor City Mafia, not my family. And now he's my co-host on my YouTube show. And he's also a good friend of mine. In fact, he just texted me two minutes ago. And he writes about this stuff. And, like, writes about it. You know what I'm saying? Everything I'm saying. A lot of the stuff that I know now about what's going on in the family is from him. Not because I'm involved or connected or calling or talking to anybody. It's because of him, his research, you know. He's got FBI agents that are in his pocket. He has street guys. That you know, him stuff. So he's really abreast, and he writes about it. You know, what I'm saying that's just what true right. crime journalism do. That's, that's what yeah. they do.
0: So, so you're you're in these gambling underground kind of rings. All these famous people are coming and going, and regular people and mob people too. So you're kind of bouncing for this place. Is that the right term? I don't even know if that's the right term.
1: Yeah, that's the right term. Security. So when you work in security, yeah. obviously somebody gets drunk and acts stupid. Obviously, somebody gets upset that they lost and they feel it's unfair and they want to make a fuss, but the main reason for me, and I was usually because I was smarter than most of the regular dopey like muscle heads that they had working security, right. they had me working the door. So when somebody comes in, if you're not on the list, you can't get in. And the FBI always trying to get in there and penetrate the, you know, these things, and you have journalists that try to get in there and penetrate these things, but more so the FBI to see who's hobnobbing with who. Right. And so the first time I ever did it was as a celebrity roast for a journalist who was retiring from the Detroit News. And Jack DeCito asked my Aunt Patty to have me do it. They knew I was a tough guy and whatever, so they are like, yeah, I don't have him. I need a guy who works with door security. And then, and then I worked security there. And in my mind, I didn't know why I, they need security for something like this, but they made it very clear. Nobody gets in unless their name is on this list. Nobody. I don't care what they say, who they're with, what they're from. So I said, okay, and they, you would going to be shocked by how many people showed up when they weren't on the list. And wow. was, you know, I'm sorry. You can't get in. They're like, well, we're with the local media. We're with the Detroit Free Press. And, you know, he, he's retired from the Free Press. I mean, he's one of my colleagues. I'm like, listen, you're not on the list. You can't get in. I'm sorry. And people were, all these people were trying and trying to get in. Well, I didn't know until after we locked the door shut and the row started. And then I realized this was a pivotal turning point in my life. I was 19 years old. Um, this is before I went to jail, actually. Cause I I remember I was still lived with my dad at the time cuz I remember driving to work that day I got pulled over and got arrested. So and I, yeah. I got pulled over and got arrested and got my car impounded but I still ended up making it to work so I could do this job <laughs> at the Gourmet House for Jack Cedo and the guy is the I didn't even know what a celebrity roast was that's how naive I was. Right. Never even heard of it. I thought it was a roast the place is called the Gourmet House and it was like a banquet hall. So I'm assuming it was just like, everybody's there to have, eat roast. know, that's <laughs> what I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, it's how, not, it's how naive I was. So we get in there. Mayor Coleman Young was there, a Detroit mayor. And anyways, the comedian or whoever was up to roast the guy, just on stage, and I am not really paying much attention. I'm leaning against the, like right next to the door of my aunt. And I've got a tuxedo shirt. You know, I'm wearing a, like a black bow tie and tuxedo shirt and, you know, black pants. And all sudden, he says, listen, everybody who works in law enforcement and or municipal, like judges, police, everybody stand up. And they all kind of like stand up. You know, they don't know what the joke's going to be, but they're going to stand up. Right. And then he says, now everybody in the mafia stand up. And like, you got to hear this kind of soft chuckle, like <laughs> he's crying. He's like, no, I'm serious. He's like, the door's closed. You know, it's just us in here. We're all family. Stand up, Mr. Toko, Mr. Tony, Mr. Mrs. Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So. please stand up. And, like, they all kind of, like, everybody's looking at them, they kind of half laugh and kind of get out of the seat a little bit and sit back down. And and everybody's laughing. They're like, see, we're all family here today. Once we've got the door closed, you've got to worry about it. We can really act like we're really us or something. And I freaking freak out because I look at my aunt, and I was like, What's a freak? I mean, I literally got the chills. I was so freaked out. Not only did it, was I taught to not even say the word mafia, because we couldn't say that in our house. Oh, wow. And like, okay. let alone, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't, you don't say that word, and then you don't say it in public by now. And here's a dude on stage going, everybody in the mafia, stand up. After, he just told all the judges and, and prosecutors and cops to stand up. it was just like, <laughs> it went against everything that that I stood for in my mind, and my brain wanted to explode. And I, but my aunt said this relax, honey, this is how it works. She's like, this is normal. And I'm like, all right. So (laughs) I kind of learned I learned a lot that day.
0: Oh, my God. So, yeah, so you were doing that for a while. Now, tell me how it started kind of progressing on to you getting into the gambling part and the cards and all that and having your own little business on the side. And then you started doing some things... Didn't you start, like, robbing banks? I mean, <laughs> we can get to that point, too. So go ahead.
1: Um, so Tony had me working working securities at, at some poker games, and I, I watched how they cut the games. And I'm like, they cut every pot, and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, this is easy. I could do this. So I started marking the players, and I'd see them. I was bouncing at this nightclub, yeah. which my grandpa got me the job. And this nightclub was called Brownies on the Lake. It was a famous club where every, all the mob guys went, you know. I was a head security guy. It was a great gig. I was only 19, 20 years old, and I'm like in this place. I'm not even old enough to be in it, and I'm bouncing there, and it was great. It was like high roller central. So I see these poker players, and I would say, hey, guys, you know, listen, give me your number. I'm setting up a game, but I'm only going to cut every third pot. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, your regular game, um, the guy's name is Nino. Nino's running the game with Tony. And uh, he said they cut every pot. I'm like, I'm only gonna cut every third pot, so you have a bigger payouts. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds good. So I get their numbers. And when I get enough guys, I called and had them game. I had a beautiful place to do a game, in my friend's basement. It was all finished. He had this big 500 gallon aquarium uh, oh, nice. down there. Yep. Um, yeah, it was beautiful. He had a real good looking girlfriend who would like be a shot girl and stuff, and use cigars and drinks and whatever they want. And I cut every third pot, and I cut two, three, four thousand bucks a game, sometimes more. But got back to Tony. I was doing that because they weren't playing his regular game. And he told him they were playing my game. Ooh. Yeah, so I got warm. Stop doing that. And then I did it again. And then the second time Tony came to the house, he said, how much did you cut out of that game? Because he knew right away. I'm like, five grand? He's like, "Well, you owe me six? I'll wait. Oh, God. So, yeah. So I literally had to go get the money. I didn't even have it. I got to browse some of it. I got, got the money and gave it to him. And he didn't say nothing. Then I did it again. And then my grandpa said, listen, Tony's really mad at you. He don't want to talk to you. He don't want to see you. Stop doing what you're doing. I can't help you. So I stopped. Tony didn't talk to me for like a year. And then I got into it with the underboss of the family after that because I was extorting a guy. It turned out to be under the protection of one of his guys. And he called me in. But when he called me in, Tony was kind of like my representative because he liked me. For whatever reason, he didn't want to see nothing bad happen to me. So he shows up. I'm just assuming he was there for that reason, I, unless it was a coincidence, I don't know. And then basically, I, I just told him I got to earn two, yada, yada, yada. And then they called me crazy, crazy gunner, crazy, uh, what are we going to do with you, this freaking guy He thinks you can beat everybody. I'm like, well, one of these days, I'm going to come with a gun, then what are you going to do? And I said, yeah, I got a gun too, so we'll figure out who's the best shot, I guess. And uh then they, they all laughed, and that was kind of the end of it. But I got the point, I got the message. Yeah. But after that, he told me we're cool again. So he started using me to do, you know, security and muscle stuff and collections. Anyways, this went on for like 10 years. Um, Over over the next 10 years, I was kind of in and out of his grace, mostly in his graces. But um, if he needed muscle, I was there. I can't really recall that many times where he wanted me to – I can only think of like three times where he, where he said, listen, I want you to hurt this guy. I can actually only remember one time I actually – Besides the freaking girlfriend thing, where he said I want you to put this guy in the hospital, wow. and then um, but that was only because uh, actually he didn't tell me to put that guy in the hospital. Come to think of it, he asked <laughs> me why I put him in the hospital, and I said he just, just yeah. He said I want you to let him know that we want our money.
0: Well, let me ask you something though, Gunner. When you're being asked these things by your relatives, your uncles, or your whatever. Are you like beyond the thought of empathy for other people? Are you just like, you know, this is just what we do. This is okay. It's it's cool. You know, I'm not going to kill him. Just going to rough him up. You end up putting someone in the hospital, but that was just your thing. Maybe he disrespected you or whatever. But are you at the point where you're like, it's fine. We can do this. I can do this. It's not a big deal. Who do you want me to go to next?
1: It's totally normal. It was totally normal. I didn't even bat an eye at it. It was literally my normal life. Wow. It was normal. Okay. Yeah, did not, yeah, did not blink, crazy. did not bat an eye. It was just completely normal. If he said, Rick, go get this money and send him a message, I know what that meant. That meant, you know, at the very least, walk up, punch him in the mouth, slap him around, and tell him they want the money, which was the plan with this guy, in fact. But I actually tripped when I was walking up to the guy, I fell, and the guy laughed. And the guy la- laughed. And that's a funny story. Cause, you know, he says, well, you know, why'd you put him in the hospital? I was so zealous about getting the guy, you know, who's a big, heavy-set biker-looking dude. He had a black Jeep. And I got out of the car and started, like, kind of half-jogging towards him. It was early. I'm not, a, I'm not a morning guy. and It was, like, 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. That's how I caught him at work, going to work at early in the morning. He owned a business. And I, like, kind of walked. You know, you see the, the steam coming out of the sewer grates in Detroit, or if you see, like, a city, sure. and the steam is kind of rising up. On, yeah. Well, that's what it looks like downtown Detroit. And one of I tripped over one of those sewer grates, and fell and did, like, a roll. I, like, rolled back into my feet as it happened. But the dude was just getting out of Jeep, and he saw that, and he turns around and he kind of chuckled, like, laughed at me. Mm. And I go, you think that's funny? And I was like, you think that's funny? And he, you know, before he could say anything, i start wailing at him. He ends up climbing under his Jeep to get away from me. Like, <laughs> you know, he's like, so guy's, <laughs> guy's screaming for help. I'm kicking at him. Come, I got to come out from under the Jeep. you think that's funny? And I am beat the shit out of him, you know? And then that's why Tony's like, what'd you do? Why'd you hurt him so bad and put him in the hospital? I'm like, he disrespected you. He says, he disrespected me? You know, well, well, how'd he do that? I'm like, he laughed at me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you were at that point where, you know, that was just the, your life. That was just how you felt about things. Now, I know that, and, and we can go back if you need to, but I got to tell my listeners how athletic you were. Cause you were like really good at every sport you did, especially football. Like you were really good at it. Like you were breaking records. You even played semi pro and you were up for the Detroit lions to see if you could make that team. And, and I know that that fell through for, and you can tell the story on that, but I was floored when I heard how good you were at sports. And then we're going to talk about how good you are at writing too. So tell me about that part. If you, if you want, and we can go back if you want,
1: um, so I was always a really good athlete all my life. I played sports as a kid. I was in some, you know, like you know, league rec league sports. I was a really good baseball player. Had I focused on baseball, I'd probably, I probably would have just been retiring from baseball a few years ago. I mean, I, was, I mean, major league. I had the potential to play major league baseball. I was just a really good outfielder. Right. Um, okay. Problem is when I got to high school, I wanted to chase girls and smoke weed, and because by the way, you don't have to be in high school to be playing that level of ball because you can still play rec league. Right. So you know, I was kicked out of school, I could still be playing high level rec league, but I did too. I stayed into that until like ninth or tenth grade. Oh. But um, what happened? I couldn't. I wasn't good at hitting the fastball, and so my coach said, you know, you got to go take a hundred pitches a day at the um, batting cages, and I didn't. And because I didn't, every time I, you know, played the, gun, the pitchers knew that uh, I couldn't hit the fastball. They'd burn them in there, 80 miles an hour, and strike me out, or I'd foul them off, and it got frustrating. And I got to the point where I was just like, man, I'm even, not even having fun anymore, man. So I was just like, hell with it, man. and I quit, and this yeah. whatever. But yeah, football came supernatural to me. I wish I, if I would have played high school football, and just been if I would had been a normal kid and played high school football, I probably would have chose. I I probably could have played either sport, but I probably would have chose to play football because it was I was much more passionate about it, and like I, I loved it. Right. And I probably would have played you know four or five years in the NFL until so my body gave out, and I would you know that's know who I was. But when I was on the run in New York, I played for a semi-pro league. Which uh, I, in a semi-pro league, I got real lucky. I was under an alias. I was basically on the run. I had a fake ID, and I registered for a trial in this league. And it just so happened the NFL had bought the World League out that year, and they were turning the World League into NFL Europe, which is whatever oh. year this would be 95, 4 or 5, whatever it was. Yeah, and they were like, so they're really looking to fill the ranks of their NFL Europe team, but not just with, because it's not that easy to recruit fresh out of college, because anyone who's any good goes to the NFL, and the kids who aren't really that good they are going on like, to start a career or whatever because they know they're never going to play in the NFL. So they are looking for somebody in between, at least, so they could scout or fill these ranks of the NFL Europe League, and they were scouting some of these high-end semi-pro leagues. So my coach gave a highlight reel to an agent, and an agent looked at it and was like, holy crap, this huge... I was a, a, a league MVP for my wow. team, by the way. My league I was in. Yeah, there was eight teams in the league, and we played eight games. So... Whatever case is, we won two championships back to back on now league MVP. So and I was just you know, I was a running back, believe it or not, you know. So I was averaging, I don't know, like hundred and ninety yards, hundred and eighty eight yards a game rushing, That's which is crazy. a lot of yards. You know, in the NFL <laughs> yeah. that would be in the NFL that'd be crazy. No, but, it is, but, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I, g- I ended up getting this agent. I met this agent at the All Star Cafe in New York City and that is a crazy story in itself. He ended up giving me some tickets to go to uh, this party for Wayne and Tisdale, who was a center for the Phoenix Suns. He was in a band called Mo Jazz. He said he's having an album premiere party here at the All-Star Cafe tomorrow. Here's tickets if you want to go. So I grabbed my boy Shaq, which is this big black dude who looked like Shaq, who played football with me, and, and he actually worked with me, too, at this restaurant. Right. And uh, anyways... We went to this party and I met Tupac there, which is crazy. Oh really? It's, yeah, all these yeah, all these NBA players that were there that I didn't know. Only one I recognized was just Spud Webb, and then the rest I had no idea. And then, uh, but Tupac was there, so it was pretty cool. I actually talked to him. I walked up and said, said right up to him, and I was like Tupac. And I'm like, "What's up, man?" He gave us all dressed up in like a black tie. Everything was like a black tie thing, which I showed up looking like a knucklehead. I had like a freaking T-shirt on with some khaki shorts and a baseball hat on backwards. I, look like an idiot. I didn't know it was a black tie thing. You know, yeah. So anyways, so the agent actually gets in contact with another agent because yeah. I told him I knew this guy, Mel Joseph. So he contacts Mel Joseph and he says, I'm going to call this combine and you're going to be kind of like a local representative. I'm going to forward them the highlight reel and then you can kind of be his agent. And so they did that and they basically to get into one of these like NFL Europe slash NFL combines, You got to be invited. And so they asked to invite me. And they said, yes. So it would be three weeks from now. And I broke my ankle. But three weeks before it happened, I broke my ankle. And that sent my life spinning out of control. And that that was the end of my career.
0: It's almost like, you know, and, and I hate that it happened for you. Because you ended up doing some really not smart things after that. But I do think that because of your lifestyle and because of how you grew up, it, it was almost like you had to go through what you went through, even the part going through prison and, and even getting some college in prison uh, as good or bad as that college credit really was. Cause it sounds like it wasn't that great for you, but you were too smart for all that. But it's almost like you had to go through it though, Gunner, to, to get where you are now. And we'll talk about that too. Cause I want to know, I want my listeners to know how you got into prison for the 13 years and you actually had a lot longer sentence, but you got out after 13 years. So Kind of give them that idea and, and what you went through there and then how, how you started talking to your now wife.
1: Yep. I mean, I might as well tell you the quick story of what led to my downfall. First of all, when I broke my ankle, yeah. that kind of devastated me psychologically because I knew my football dreams were over, and that devastated me psychologically. Right. Then they were like, by the way, here's some pain pills, which pain pills are like kind of where my kryptonite, like I had an on-again, on off-again addiction problem. For about 10 years. But, oh, wow. but not bad. You know, I mean, depending. It, they weren't nothing like well, like a lot of people would be. But I might take them for like three months straight and then get off and not take them. And a couple times it even led to where I did heroin for a couple of months. But then I go to jail for something petty. Like I got caught with a pistol one time, went to jail for a couple of weeks. And that's all I needed was to get off of it for a couple of weeks and I'd be fine. And then I might not take nothing again for a year or two or three. Right. And then something bad. Like my, then my best friend died and that kind of set me off going oh. for a couple of you know, several months and then I get just back to jail and something petty again and I'm back free again, back in my so nobody ever knew. I was always just this kind of big muscle bound athletic workout dude, who had nice cars, nice all these toys, nice houses, all that stuff. Well at the end when I broke my ankle it kinda of sent me I mean it just psychologically I went in a downward spiral and so now I'm on pills, which ultimately would lead to heroin over like a last year I was before I went to prison and I had just bought my second house but what happened was I got busted with a bunch of dope because my girlfriend's crackhead brother was this really scumbag piece of dirt of a dude, man. Just a scumbag. I, I didn't want him to live with us or really me. It's just me. I, it was our house, me and my girlfriend's house, but she wasn't even living with me yet because her father was sick. So she was staying home with him. So she's like, just let him live with us. Let him live with you for a few weeks. So He'll get down to speed. He's got of prison, blah, blah, blah. He's been out of prison his whole freaking life. And there's a dude I can't stand. I like mostly everybody, even people I don't like. I, I, I like, oh, there's something about them I can like. I hated this dude to wow. the core. He's just a rotten, scumbag, thieving, lying dirtbag. And then one day, he was at our house, and he said something that was really foul and, and raunchy about his old sister. Like, he, you know, he said some something disrespectful to her, and she's the only reason he's even got a roof over his head. So I slapped him around, and just before I could dare to before that, he had came home when I was. Counting a bunch of money, I had like forty thousand bucks. I think it was thirty-eight thousand bucks, and I was counting on the table. I didn't know he would run up to the store to get cigarettes or something. So uh, I mean, because he didn't even have a car, so like, he walked up to the store. So all of a sudden, the front door opens, boom, he walks in. I got forty thousand bucks on the table. And He looks over, he's like, "Oh man, damn, man, when you stealing that money like that, bro? Like to hook me up? I know you're selling coke. I know you got dope, man. I know you're selling." I'm like, "Yeah, Mark. What I'm gonna do? I'm gonna hook up a crackhead with some with a freaking kilo of coke." <laughs> I, mean, he's thinking, I said, "Bro." So, not, nah, this is gambling money, blah, 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 blah. So then I smack him around a couple of days later. You know, I don't beat him up real bad because it's my girlfriend's brother, and I didn't want to deal with her, you know, crying about that. I did give him a black eye though, but that was just because I, like, smashed my elbow on his face, and I had him smash into the fricking, <laughs> like, I tackled him and smashed my elbow into his face a couple of times. And said, if you ever say anything like that again about your sister, I said, you won't have to worry about nothing. You'd be end up in a dumpster, and that'll be that. You'd yeah. just be another crackhead in a dumpster. Anyways, so he said people said, Bitch, I said, what are you gonna do? You, doing nothing. you can't whoop my ass. Gonna do so, he went right to the cops, called the cops, told them I had a bunch of dope in the house. Oh, coke. He said no. I had a bunch of coke in the house. Yeah. No. So they raid the house and find two kilos of heroin, which is like a two like two hundred thousand dollars worth of heroin. Oh. So yeah, but they don't have a good case. They have a really weak case because his credibility is really bad because he's a freaking crackhead he's been in and out of prison his whole life and yeah, it's just no credibility. So the house is not in my name, it's in my girlfriend's name. I wasn't there when they raided the house, and the drugs have no, none of my fingerprints on them. And then my lawyer got to contradict themselves in terms of surveillance. They said, one come in and said, did you surveil him? They said, yes, we saw him there pull up in a Range Rover, and then he left, and blah, 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 blah. And then they sequestered him and brought the superior in and said, did you surveil the house? And he said, no, we did not. Oh. And my lawyer was like, so you didn't you didn't surveil the house? No, we got a tip from confidential informant. So it so, and told so, that large quantities of cocaine are in the house. He witnessed it in 48 hours. So we acted on that uh, um, impulse and got the magistrate to sign a warrant at that time. And we raided the house at 215, blah, 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 My lawyer was like, so you never surveilled the house and saw him go in or out of the house? You don't know if he lives there. You don't know if this is a resident. He's like, no, we acted on the tip. It was all BS. They got thrown out. Right. But what, because of that. I did get put on probation. There was some, a uh, gotten some analogs, like pills, that I forgot I had, had in the house. I totally forgot them in the, in the medicine cabinet. So I copped up to that. I got a really good lawyer, the like, best lawyer you could get, you know, and, um, and he got basically dismissed. I got six months probation, six months probation. Okay. But so here's the problem with that. If you get busted with that much dope and you're on the street, nine times out of ten, you're ratting. You're a informant. Oh. So everybody thought I was a, a rat, you know, because you can't get caught with that kind of dope and be on the street. Um, they said, come on down, we want to talk to you. I said, do I I need a lawyer and bond money? And they said, no, we just want to talk to you. It's still pending lab results. I said, okay. I went down there and I told them, you got nothing. It's my girlfriend's crackhead brother in the house. He said, who said anything about your girlfriend's crackhead brother? I'm like, I know the rat informant you got is him. He's the only one else who's been in the house, so I know it's him. And I have no no idea what he's got going on or why he'd do that or whatever. But in any mind, you have no case. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And I win some, we lose some. I said, yeah, all right, whatever, bro. You got no case. And I got up and I left. Didn't think they were going to charge me. But everybody in the freaking neighborhood thought they were freaking, you know, everybody thought I was ratting, I guess, because everybody got scared. I don't blame them, you know. I'm, but, but eventually they did charge me. Nine months later, I got a, a court appointment for an arraignment that I had to go to. And um, I got the good lawyer, and the lawyer got it freaking thrown out. And but so now I got two major problems I got here. First, Everybody in the underworld that I dealt with, or, or a lot of people knew, they're like, how sick is Al in the street, gets busted with two keys of heroin? How is he not being charged with it? Because they can't find any paperwork on it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. There should be some uh, record of the arrest and the charges. Nothing. So that would imply in itself that I was ratting. So it's all BS. So what happens is, now I owe 180000 bucks. Oh. Um, to a wise guy for the dope who's a cousin of mine but but it's not like he's going to kill me over it but he's sweating me really bad and he's real nervous too he doesn't know if I'm a rat if I'm flipping I'm whatever I tell him the story he seems to believe it but but he needs the money because he's like I owe these guys and yada 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 and the guys he were dealing with I won't even I won't even get involved but they're not the kind of guys they don't care about mob guys this would kill you anyway you know cartel guys and so I got to get the money so what I do I end up Robbing another dope dealer, which is this black dude named Bay, who I actually really liked and felt bad about, yeah. but I ended up getting hundred pounds of weed from him. Basically, literally robbed Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, and so I got the yeah I got the hundred pounds of weed and gave it to Angelo and said, "Listen, bro, this is the best I got." You know, it was it was probably hundred and fifty, hundred seventy-five thousand dollars worth of weed. Oh my god! So he was happy. Wow. But so so now I have no real way to really earn like I used to because I don't have the plug on the heroin. I don't have the plug on the weed. You see what I'm saying? i yeah. burned two plugs on one. Yeah. Now the heroin plug ain't hooking me up, and the, and the weed plug ain't hooking me up. And the only thing I got left is to rob. So now I start robbing dope dealers, pimps, banks, whatever. So oh hey, God. businesses, I didn't even care. If I needed money for dope, fix, pay my bills, didn't matter. I'd freaking walk into a freaking business and pull pistols so and give me a freaking money. And I, that's how little I cared at the end. I was just like, my life sucks. I don't even care. I'm a freaking junkie. It's over, man. So they shoot me, they kill me, they rest me. I don't care. Who cares? But the thing was, I had this beautiful new home. I had a, you know, a fiance, a girl I've been with for 13 years, a real nice girl. Every toy you can think of. I had a jet boat, two four-wheelers, two snowmobiles, a um, motorcycle, a couple of cars, nice cars. I was living in this weird, strange fantasy world beyond my means. Plus, I started gambling. On top of it, I started playing blackjack and gambling. Yeah, uh, because I went to Vegas with some high rollers and I and I won, and then <laughs> that got me addicted to gambling. So now, on top of everything else, I got a two thousand dollar a week heroin habit. Oh, yeah, and I'm gambling about I don't know two thousand a week too, mm. and my bills are like two thousand a week. So to survive, I have to pull six thousand a week
0: clear. Wow. So. And this is what year? 2003. So in 2003, six grand a week. I don't know what that calculates to now, but it ain't six grand now. It's probably more like nine or more.
1: Yeah, I'd say ten grand. Yeah, probably nine, ten oh grand a week. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, and my house and stuff was nice. I had a beautiful house, beautiful house. I mean, yeah. not crazy nice, but for a 29 year old kid, Heck it yeah. was nice. Because. It was beautiful. I had it decked out, hardwood, board, marble, every fireplace. It was like really nice furniture. It was beautiful. I mean, for anybody to have now or then, or I'm saying it's 29 or 49, it would be a beautiful house. But it was my second house, by the way, too. I bought my first house when I was like 26, 27, which is a little house in Roseville, Michigan. It was a nice house, too, but it was real small. I mean, anyways, so I ended up getting arrested for this crime spree, and they, they just hammered me away, man. You know, it's just they. I got in high speed chase my girlfriend, she we always split the bills down the middle. It didn't matter if I had more money than her. I'd always offer to pay the bills. I'd be like, I ah, will pay this month. I got a little extra or whatever. She didn't know what I was doing. Nothing. She didn't know nothing. She knew I was in the streets. She just didn't know to what degree and where I was getting money or what. She just she played like she was naive and wanted to keep it that way. Sure. She just didn't want to know. As long as I came home to her at night, you know, by if I was home by ten, eleven, twelve o'clock at night. She was happy, and she didn't ask no questions. You know what
2: I'm
1: saying? Right. Um. This it is it it what it is. So she said, "I need your half of the bills." And I'm just thinking, "Damn, I've done burned every bridge. I've robbed everything I can. I got nothing coming in." Right. So I left. I said, "I said, all right, listen. I'll go. Get, I'm gonna go to the bank get the money." And I went to the bank, and got the money, but I robbed the bank. I, I got a high speed chase and got arrested and beat down and. It's all over the paper. My girlfriend. several couple hours later, she is on the news. She sees the freaking bank right down the street for oh our God. house we got Jeez. robbed, and she sees it
0: on the news. Yeah, and Stop. there's me. No.
1: On... And then there's me. It's me. <laughs> oh, <Yeah.
0: God. laughs> She's crying. Oh, yeah, yeah. So is this when they finally, because I know you, you robbed a few banks. This might've been the last one that you robbed, but by then you're, you're going to prison, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. No, that was the one that got me on it. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So it
2: was so over.
0: You're, you're in prison and I think it's, you're still in the same state. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you get into prison, you're not exactly new at this kind of thing. You've been arrested. I think, I think you said 38 times. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I've been arrested 38 times. Yeah.
0: So this is not new hat for you. So, but something came along. Well, you got along with some people. You didn't get along with others. You're not there to make friends. By then you're so torn. You're depressed. You know, you had this possible career on the line when you were 26, 27. That fell through because of the broken ankle. Then you just go straight downhill with the heroin and the weed and getting caught with all those things. Now you're in prison. You probably don't really care that much about anything at this point. You're just a broken man. But then something comes up where they offer you something because you are still very smart. You're reading like two or three books a week.
1: Yeah, I read it probably. on I mean, that I'm not a super fast reader. So I, I like to take my time and absorb the books that I'm reading and oftentimes actually pause while I'm reading. And I kind of envision that story unfolding in my mind, and not just let the words draw the picture. So I read about, yeah, two, three books a week. I read books before I went to prison, which is weird. I'm totally weird that a guy like me and from my background would be into reading, yeah. but maybe it's because I was, I enjoyed the escape. Maybe it's because yeah. I was able to get away from that world that I just didn't feel like I fit in or didn't, I didn't enjoy. I didn't want to be part of, I could go and read a fantasy book, a sci-fi book or, you know, crime filler, whatever it was. I could read these books and just leave the world that I just didn't feel like I felt part of or belonged in or whatever. And then, yeah, in prison, I started reading and I came to the conclusion Pretty quickly, most of the books that I'm reading that I have been reading all my life, you know, I knew I was going to prison for a long freaking time. I was going to have a lot of time. And I said to myself, I can write. I've can. i always known this, though, about it, even from reading books in the street. And I, even in the street before prison, I honestly read like about two books a week, which is wow. crazy because I'd be around like wise guys and my grandparents, you know, maybe looking at me like, you reading a book? like you always got a book, man. What do you always read? I, said, I like to read. and thought it was weird. Anyways, and I concluded years before that that I could write better books. My, my my with my imagination and the way things work i just knew i had this gift so i just decided i got on time now so yeah. i at one point i did a 17 month stretch in the hole in jail when i was fighting my case 17 months i was in solitary confinement oh. and um and i just yeah i started writing in my mind these stories that i began to contrive these crazy stories and um wow. and i just i wrote the first one was like um yeah, sports theme drama. The next one was a uh, military drama about Vietnam. And the next one was a kind of a contemporary uh, sports theme high school coming-of-age drama. Then there was a kind of almost like a romantic comedy. And then, uh-huh. and then another one was... um, uh, The next one was Eagle's Talon, which is like a Jason Bourne type of book. Okay. And then the next one was To Be a King, my book To Be a King, which is the Mafia ones that, that I've published that everybody loves. And then after that was... The Lion Chaser, and after that, which is about this young billionaire who's, who becomes the youngest billionaire in America, but he runs away from foster home when he's like freaking 16 years old, off right. to New York City, and and becomes a billionaire, like, but under a fake name. And then um, the next book was the last one I wrote in prison was about these two big cocaine dealers. And it's called The Snowman Chronicles. but anyway yeah, I just kept writing, yeah. and I just I got really really good good at what I do. I mean, people were amazed, people were blown away. In fact. I know you're going to ask, it's, that's how I met my wife. Yeah. My, my cousin started a Facebook page for me, and he said, what do you want me to put on there? And I put there, I'm a, i can, at this time, I didn't even know what Facebook was. He's like, well, I'm, let me start your Facebook, because I, I pretty much dear John, my ex-girlfriend. I just told her go on with her life. Right. I knew she still wanted to be part of my life, but I also knew at this point by now, she's probably got a boyfriend, or she's probably dating somebody, and I could tell. Right. And as soon as I could tell, like, she, she lasted, like, five or six years, but then all of a sudden things got different, and then I realized why. I'm like, just go on with your life and forget it. And that left a very big, dark void in my life. Oh. So my cousin felt real bad about it, too. He said, he's not yourself. Why don't I start you a Facebook page? I'm like, what's that? He's like, what's this new thing called Facebook? Because it's, like, 2008. He's like, it's this thing. You connect with some of the old people in the neighborhood, whatever, and give me a couple of names, and I'll see if they're on there, and they'll switch out, and yada, yada, yada. He put on there that I was a writer and a Christian, and that I was uh, writing books in prison. And shortly after that, I get a message from this girl. I said, "Here's how you can contact me directly with a, something called JPay, with like a prison email." And yeah. she said, "If you want to talk to him, here's how you can." And she wrote me and says, "You know, I don't. You probably don't know me, but I I went to school with you or have a very vague memory of you, I remember hearing your name pretty often." I do remember you're a bad guy, a drug dealer, like a fight, things like that.
2: Wow.
1: She's like, I'm a new Christian, too. I was raised Muslim. I was never practicing Muslim, but I was raised in a Muslim home. But now I'm a Christian. I see you're a Christian. Maybe you can do a Bible study um, on my Facebook page, kind of like flexing or sitting there with my shirt off or whatever. She, yeah. Obviously, that, was, that played a part in getting her attention. But she also, his work gets really interesting. <laughs> She's a book nerd. Um, all her life was, a, was like a super book nerd. So she started reading when she was like four. And she read the whole Little House on the Prairie series yeah. by like age five. Mm-hmm. And she's like this, this big, big book nerd. So in high school, she worked at the bookstore, this local. Remember, I told you, I like I used to read, like in the world, I used to read books. But I used to go to the gym and I'd go to this bookstore that was right next to my gym. And I'd buy these used books because they're cheaper and that way I didn't have to pay as so much. Right. And um. Well, that she worked at that bookstore, but oh I didn't God. know her at the time then. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she. So on top of that, she now worked for a publisher in New York. And although she worked in academic division of publishing, she knew people who worked in the you know the fiction and nonfiction and stuff like that. Right. So she messaged me and said, "Listen, maybe if you can have somebody turn the book into a PDF and e- email it to me, I'd be happy to read it. And if it's got you know." Some potential, I can maybe you know forward it to the people that that count maybe or I, I'd be happy to either way you know just if you want to do a Bible study if you want to do that whatever so we started writing a little bit and you know she was real nice and I was a gentleman of course i'm not going to be I wasn't after trying to mack on a chick or trying to you know have a girlfriend or not like that I was completely she's the first chick I ever was completely an open book, completely exposed myself and yeah. just honest, never lied didn't run any games just, Every other girl I ever met, I was just from running games, telling them lies, and whatever they want to hear. Oh, yeah. Her, I was just like, it doesn't, I don't care anymore. I mean, if you, you like me, you don't, it doesn't make a difference to me. This is who I am. And so, but she liked who I was. And uh-huh. so she found me interesting. So she, my boy P, turned my book into a PDF and sent it to her and she was blown away. So, I mean, naturally when I say that now, she's my wife, she's blown away, but at the time, I didn't know this woman, and this is what she wrote me. A woman I don't know at all. Yeah. Nothing. I seen one picture of her, and I like, got 2 JP's from her. I don't even know who she is. She wrote me back, and she says, in publishing, there's there's a lot of good writers, but the stories are occasionally good, but the writing's not that good. Yeah. So you have one or the other most of the time. Right. She's like, every once in a while, there's a, there's a unicorn. She's like, you're the unicorn. Oh. She's like, your book is incredible. Like, I could not believe that you wrote this book. I mean, it just blew my mind. I can't believe it, it was so well written. It's Aww. such a good story. It's so incredible. She's like, I just, I want to help you get this book published. I mean, you're going to be famous. You know, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be a world-renowned author. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I heard that from a lot of people in prison. Uh, guys who, you know, read my books in prison. And there's a lot of big readers in prison. Yeah, guys, that's all they do is read. Still. You know, it's one thing to have guys in prison go, Man, dude, you're the truth on this book. This is the best book i ever read. I heard, I heard my book, the best book I've ever read, like a hundred times from a hundred different guys. They were just, I'd give them my book, they'd come back, go, this is the best book I've ever read, bro. Wow. You got another one? I'm like, yeah, I do, actually. I hand them another one of my books and come back three days later and go, dude, I know I said the other one was the best book i ever read. I think this one's better than that one. I'm oh, like, so wow. you mean the two best books you've ever read in your life were, were my books? And they'd be like. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, well, I got a couple more. And they come back and each time go, dude, this is better than the other one. So, they just, no matter what, they get sucked into it at that moment. And they think it's the best one. But whatever the case is, you know, when guys are telling you this over and over and over and over and over, you get a little cocky or not. I don't mean cocky, but confidence. I'm confident that I'm doing good. What I'm doing, I'm doing it right. I'm confident that I'm right. doing whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it right, you know. And so, anyways... Me and my wife slowly started writing letters back and forth and kind of talking, and found that we both love the outdoors and we both love animals and we both love nature and we both love, and we, we ended up falling in love. So, Aww. over like nine months through like a thousand pages of love letters,
0: we oh fell in gosh. love. And so, you should publish
1: that. The love letters? <laughs> yes. I have most of them.
0: I mean, a lot of them you know you can change the names or you can change some circumstances but boy it sounds like if you fell in love over writing boy the magic in those words oh yeah she's a writer too
1: she's got a couple books and she's a writer so we're both writers and a wordsmiths and we enjoy writing yeah and yeah oh my god if, if i publish our letters the problem is you'd have to do so much editing, and condensing because it's got to be three thousand pages of letters. So I mean, between us, right. maybe two thousand. Well, and it uh, can be a they, three. You know, it, it could. Down, it could down to like five or six hundred pages. Yeah.
0: Well, it could be a three book series or something. You know. You know. Title. Yeah. You know. Yeah. we
1: are funny too. Like she's really funny, and I'm really funny, and like we really use our wit and our charm and our sense of humor to impress yeah. each other. So there's a lot of there's a lot of funny, but there's also you know there's a lot of kind of flirty, sure. uh, almost pervy, pervy stuff that, you know, private people say privately. I mean, I need to just cut some of that out. But anyways, it, so she ended up waiting. She said, I want to wait for you. I'm going to leave my husband. And yeah. it's not, not funny being a homewrecker, but she was with a guy. She just wasn't happy. They were almost like a friendship type of relationship. They got along well. They were like friends. But they weren't sexual. They weren't really, you know, it's just they didn't have much going on together. They yeah. were a symbiosis to where they found both of them needed each other because they both made good money and it was a comfort thing. But she ended up kind of telling him, you know, so I feel bad about that because, you know, he was really upset and heartbroken when she told him, like, I, I feel really bad. Uh, I can only imagine, but, but anyways, this wasn't meant to be, he ended up getting married a year or two later. So good for him. But uh, anyway, so she says, where do you want to live when you get out? And I said, way up North, out in the woods in the middle of nowhere, not around people. I want to be able to go fishing, hunting, forwarding, snowmobiling, and just be away from people. I no offense to anyone, but I I hate people. After you're <laughs> stuck living on top of people for for 13 years in a cage yeah. around idiots, I understand. Know, I just don't want to be around people. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't like traffic. I don't like cars. I don't like honking people, loud noise, crowds. I don't want none of it. I want to be where it's quiet and beautiful. I remember when I went to promote my book at BookCon in New York City. And I had been out about nine months, and you know, but I've been living out in the out in the middle of nowhere. And I remember the first time I had like a panic attack was when I was in New York City after we'd done BookCon all day, which is you know crowded book But I was in this like crowded, loud like bar restaurant place, jam packed. with people everywhere, and you know I'm kind of like the you know center of attention. And they were it was just crazy. It's all these like, I had to go outside. I'm mean, like all these fucking people around me pulling and grabbing at me, and everybody's going to talk to me. And I'm just like man, I just too many people for me, man. This is sensory overload. Yeah. But it, anyway, so. I told us I told her I wanted to live up north, out in the middle of nowhere, and she got us a house and, um, and that's where I lived. I got out the day I got out of prison, four of my boys picked me up while she was five hours north cooking us a feast. Yeah. And my boys took me to breakfast and they got me a nice um Bob Evans, you know, steak and egg breakfast and they gave me an iPhone and some gifts and then they like two of my boys drove me up north five hours and then I, I snuck up on Maria, my wife, tomorrow she would be my wife the next day. I married her the next day. So I basically snuck up on her. She didn't know where we were, how far away we were. And uh, she was sitting on the back deck. It's all surrounded by woods. There's no neighbors that can be seen. And I had them drive past the house and drop me off. And they had been videoing everything all day on live, Facebook live. And so I'm like, not this, not this, not this. I don't want this live. I don't want this
2: This between
1: me and her. And so she was on the back porch or deck, we had a deck, deck, and uh, she was sitting there praying, and she didn't even hear me come sneaking up through the woods, and I come walking up and I go, "What's up, Birdie?" Because I call her Birdie, and she's like, "Oh my God!" And like I jumped over the railing, and gave her hug and kiss and snuggle and like you know, we were both crying and held each other for about five minutes. You know, it's, I mean, it's a very emotional moment. You know, it's the first mm-hmm. time I got to be alone with her ever. Yeah, so, yeah. She yeah, waited to, six yeah. and a half
2: years.
0: Oh. But see, that's the love story that I like about this. You know, you came full circle, Gunner. You went through hell and back and met the love of your life. Sounds like you're happier than you've ever been. You live in this beautiful mountain area, you know, wooded area house. You're not around everybody and and their dogs all day long. You can fish when you want, you can hunt when you want, you can. Walk around naked in your house if you want. Probably you're that private. I understand that. I yeah, <laughs> I mean,
1: not, not probably. I could walk around my property naked, in, in way, <laughs> and I do, yeah. and I do. I'm not joking. No, now we bought a this year. We bought a 20 acre like homestead in northern Michigan with. Uh,
2: Good for you. I mean, there's
1: one neighbor like 300 yards away, but if I stay on this side of the property, then he'd never seen me run around naked, which I've done. And there's, <laughs> there's great deer deer all over the freaking place. I got four chickens, four cats, oh. uh, a four-wheeler, a dirt bike. I got everything I need. And so I love it here. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, you Paradise. know, that's,
0: that sounds like magical now for you. And you know, you're still young. You're not old. You can still have a wonderful life and still write and still love the woman you're with and still do all the things you've ever wanted to. You just started out, in a way that, honestly, I think you had to go through to get where you are now. Some people have to go through horrible marriages and abusive situations to finally recognize the life they have now, and that's what's going on for you, I think.
1: Well, it's not even something to think. You're right. I mean, it's nothing. You're right. I had to go through everything. I had to go through to get. I wouldn't have wrote my novels. A day will come when I'll be dead, but my novels will be remembered for a long time, oh, and um, maybe a hundred years, maybe hundreds of years. So that was what was meant to be to create my legacy. And I think those novels will probably carry the weight of a lot of families for a long time. The people that I love and care about most, I hope that those novels will generate revenue that will provide for those families for, for generations, you know? So, well, I, I, had, I had to go through
0: that. Well, you did. And you know what? I've heard nothing besides from you, but from other people, how great these novels are. So to my listeners, I want you to tell everyone where they can find your books. I want you to tell them the name of your website. And I will put everything on my show notes so they can just click right now and go buy or, or listen to your YouTube channel or whatever um, as soon as you tell them where to find you.
1: So my books, my novels are To Be a King to be a king volume one and two and the reason why they're called to be a king is the main character's name is amiel and that's a Latin term which is kind of a term for the word king it's an old Latin word for like a nice. local king over like a fiefdom or whatever and then he knows that and that's why they call him, they call him King so it's called to be a king because his name is amiel okay. um you can find him at Amazon they have Perfect five star reviews, volume one and two, both. There, there's a lot of them. I mean, they've got like a hundred five star reviews, so they're they're pretty pretty good. People, oh, a lot of people, compa- lot of people c- compare them to or s- say, "I wrote the next Godfather," or "I wrote the Godfather of nice. this generation." I love that. But, yeah, I mean, but I say I tend to say like, "I wrote the first to be a king." I mean, it really. This is not that much. The only thing that that makes it comparable to the Godfather is that it's a very big very romantic, and very old-school mafia story. Okay. But that's about the only thing you can compare. It's a big old-school mafia story where it's this very romantic world, and there's this huge conflict, and there's some romance in it too. And so there's that. So okay. Then my, uh, my my website is Gunner Detroit, where you can find basically links to everything I do. I do write a series of short stories called the Limbo Chronicles. Which I'm trying to sell as a book and or TV show, believe it or not. Nice. And then and then I have a short, short series called The Syndicate, which is actually a really good thing. That I'm trying to sell as a TV show too. But I did, but my YouTube channel is is pretty interesting too. It's called Gunner Detroit, or you can just my type my name Alan Gunner Lindblom, Gunner Alan Lindblom. But Gunner Detroit, and it's basically I share like dozens, like I have like 250 some episodes. And out of those 250, about 200 of them are just me telling these crazy ass stories of me in the street. And I didn't really even share any of them on here. I mean, not a couple little ones, but I mean, there's so many insane things that I was involved in and got my hands in and did. And they're just, every one of them, you'll think, my God, why isn't this on Netflix? I mean, there's this whole thing. Every single one of these shows should be on Netflix. Right. I have a co-host, either Scott Bernstein or Larry Mazza, a former Columbo hitman, or I have celebrity guests, like actors, directors, producers. Most of them are celebrities that revolve around, like, ex-gangsters and mobs. So they play like guy my friend, Louis Lombardi, called me last night. He's from The Sopranos. And then I have Craig LaVella played play the other day. He played Don Dio Genovese in Making of the Mob. And then uh, the guys wow. like that, they're, they're cool, too, and those shows are interesting, too. Absolutely. But I think my best shows are the shows where I'm just telling these crazy-ass stories. I think those are my shows. I'm well, you're such Detroit a good storyteller,
0: though. You're such a great storyteller, uh, and I can tell that because, well, first of all, and the, one of the reasons I think you're probably such a great writer, you read. If you are a voracious reader, you probably can yeah. do a pretty good job writing, and that's that. I know that's how I started it. I was just a good, voracious reader, so I can only imagine, and then reading as much and as many books as you did. My goodness, dude. So, no, I... I can't thank you enough for for coming on my podcast. This is officially my longest episode, so congrats to that. Oh. You broke another record, and uh, <laughs> God, I warned you. I, you did warn me, and it's okay because you know what? I got some great content from my listeners. Uh, they're going to be blown away by your story and. I seriously, I I just can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, this has been fantastic, and I wish you all the best with your books and your lovely wife and your wonderful life there in the boonies out in the suburbs of Detroit. I think that's fantastic for you.
1: Thank you. I am. Um, it's not actually where I live. is It's five hours away from Detroit in oh, northern, way even northern better, Michigan. So <laughs> I'm making sure I made sure that I was going to be out there in you know, so. That's why I enjoy it out in the middle of nowhere. Nice. By the way, I also own our thing apparel, which is pretty cool. Oh, yeah. You custom make apparel. So, if you ever heard the term La Cosa Nostra, that's a euphemism for the mafia, Cosa Nostra. Well, in English, it means our thing. So, we have all these different designs. So, go to ourthingapparel.com. And then, if you're like in the back, it says your city with our logo and our thing. So, if you're from Cleveland or whatever, it is, just order up Cleveland or Detroit, Chicago, whatever. It's all over the country. Oh, nice. It's, yeah.
0: Well, is that, um, is that on your website as well? Can they click on that on your website too? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. Because yeah, yep. it's, it's got your thing. it's got your appearances and everything. So yeah. No, Gunner. Seriously, uh, I wish you all the best and say hello to your sweet wife and you guys. You just live your best life, honey, and just enjoy this. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. Let me know when you uh, edit it together and do what you do, and I'll share it around. And do my best to help, kind of bring bring some awareness. And have to have you on my radio show, by the way. I, so you can promote your show.
0: I would love it. Don't be saying that and don't mean it, because I'll do it. <laughs>
1: yeah, but listen, don't be surprised. I might, meet, I might have an opening tomorrow, so I'm to call you tomorrow and be like, listen, I've got to fill a spot tomorrow. Come on in and we'll talk about your podcast. You might have to come on. It's Friday uh, night at 79. So i got two slots, and um, I have a, an author. But you're an author too, right? Yes, I
0: am. So we'll, we'll right, talk, well, we'll I'll, talk I'll, later. We'll talk later. Uh, but no, thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Of course. My pleasure.
0: If you like what you heard, please leave me a five star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com. So check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support. And I'll talk to you next week.